This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Happy Monday to you. Dr. Matt here along with uh, Terry and Becca. The gang gathered, of course, to do what we can to give you the tools, the information you need to live a healthier life. Today, by the way, uh, Comey on the media tour, kind of tipping over, well, you know, creating more chaos. I saw saw today it's going to be a five-week media tour. Oh, wow. It's going to just keep going. And so far he's just repeating himself, but we'll see if he tries to diversify the message a little bit. Well, once the book is officially out, out. On then, Tuesday. So Tuesday, then everyone can read it and then Well, no, no, one, be... no one's actually going to read it. Well, I mean, everybody in the news. Yeah. Remember, they do that one night overnight read yeah, everyone... to find every great quote. Right. Yeah, that'll have, be exciting. You have like the interns, the low-level first-year reporter just tear through the book and then that's yeah. it. Yeah. Good times. What I saw today, there's two things that needs to happen. What? One uh, Comey needs to do all these interviews to sell books so that there's more Trump books. Because his, well, that's not really two things, but his his continuing to talk about it ticks off a certain person with a Twitter account. <laughs> and that causes more discussion, right? Yeah. Which just causes this cycle to happen, which will lead to more Trump books. And that's really what this is about for the publisher Interesting. angle. Now, Comey thinks he's, you know, doing his part to save the union well right so there's always that and um but that's the thing uh fire and fury book did the same thing the more the president talks about it the more publicity the book gets this book they have eight hundred thousand printed where the fire and fury book they had about one hundred thousand oh wow so it's why fire and fury was instantly out of stock yeah and this one will stick around for a while which is why the publisher is kind of amazed there weren't more leaks leading up to the to now because there's eight hundred book, eight hundred thousand books yeah. floating around, and just kind of no what one said a anything. fun, fun time this is going to be. No, and uh, President Trump has officially named him Slimy. Slimy, yeah. So he's got oh, his nickname now. No, that's good. Well, it was mean, wasn't it Lion Comey? It was Lion Comey, but it so seems it's progressed like progressed now. Well, yeah, it's okay. Slimy Comey, but which right. is, I don't know. I mean, it seems like a Rocket Man. That seems very positive. Mm-hmm. You know, for a dictator, seems more positive than slimy. True. I guess it doesn't pay to be the ex-FBI director. I guess. Man, so we'll get to that fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll also be talking about how corporate America can curb income inequality, how they can help out, you know, balancing incomes a bit. They kind of, at times, they, it feels like they, they're just focused on making money. And our guest is talking about how if they make a couple changes, you can make money and make the situation better. Yeah, and improve the conditions of the world. But if it's only about making money for the corporation, then – but by the way, you need the world to work together too to make sure that your corporation ah, can stay viable. Details. Itty-bitty details. We'll get to all of that fun straight ahead. But first, to the rest of the headlines, Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? French President Emmanuel Macron named in a uh, Macron that claimed in a television interview that France has convinced President Trump that it's necessary to remain in Syria long term. 
according to a French news agency. Ten days ago, President Trump was saying the United States of America had a duty to disengage from Syria, says Macron. We convinced him it was necessary to stay. I assure you we have convinced him that it is necessary to stay for the long term. If Trump follows through on this alleged commitment to Macron, it would be one of the biggest and most abrupt foreign policy reversals in his presidency. Trump has demanded for months over the objections of his national security team that his administration withdraw U.S. troops from Syria. Wow. So um, he wasn't going to be the guy that would engage abroad in these sort of yeah. situations. Well, it, it, it's interesting because it doesn't seem like um, President Trump would want to hear Macron say that he's the reason he no. did the Assyrian attack. Absolutely okay. not. Okay. He was also apparently not so happy with the way we kicked out a bunch of Russian diplomats because he wanted to kick out exactly the same as other countries, the same number. And we kicked out 60. Yeah. And that equaled like the entire EU almost. <laughs> so I was like, wait, wait, wait. You said it was going to be the same as Germany, the same as, as England. They're like, yeah, collectively. No, no, no. As the country. So he's kind of mad. He feels like he's been misled by AIDS, and yeah. we'll see what happens. So he actually ended up trusting leaders of other countries more than his own AIDS, his own team. His I own. guess. Wow. So we'll see what happens. The thriving that. economy looks to be bolstering Donald Trump's approval rating. But his person, personal unpopularity, especially among women, may have been putting a ceiling on how high that can go. The president remains poorly rated overall in the latest ABC News Washington Post poll. 56% of, 56 of Americans, Monday, just not a good day for uh, Mushmouth. No. 56% of Americans disapprove of his job performance versus 40% who approve. And strongly disapprovers outnumber strong approvers nearly 2 to 1. His average approval rating after 15 months in office, 38%, is the lowest on record in polls dating to the Truman administration. Wow. Men approve of Trump by a slim margin, 49 to 47%. Women disapprove by a 2 to 1 margin, 32 to 64. And while and was to say and white men see him more unfavorably than favorably as a person by 12 points, 53 to 41, and women uh, they said they have a more unfavorable opinion of him as a person. Okay. Women, sixty-eight to twenty-four. Wow, that's amazing. Because it seemed like you, you could not get elected without the female vote. Yeah, but he somehow did. A small female vote, but yes. Wow. Well, that might not bode well coming up. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Uh, new this morning, seven inmates have died, 17 are injured after fights broke out in a maximum security prison in South Carolina. The brawl started at the Lee Correctional Institution around 7 p.m. Sunday, prison spokesman said. He said the state law enforcement division agents helped secure the prison around 3 a.m. Hmm. That's kind of scary. I mean, prison would be scary enough, but then to have a riot or whatever, an event. Yeah. In prison would be terrifying. Duck and cover, especially when you just want to sleep. <laughs> uh, finally, and this is no news to you, Matt. Fortnite is popular among teenagers. Yes, it is the new thing. It says, by the way, teenagers and radio show producers. Ah, we'll talk about it. One day this winter, more than 3.4 million people from around the globe played on the online video game Fortnite simultaneously, setting their personal wow. their, their record for the day. And many of them were teens. In Missouri, a science teacher and coach has started confiscating smartphones from students caught playing Fortnite in class. 
Administrators at one British school sent a text urging parents to banish the game, saying it's unsuitable for primary pupils and needs to be banned at home. This according to the Sun newspaper. Uh, Maker Epic Games is aware of the problem. The company's added a warning to the game's loading screen asking students not to play the game during class. (laughs) It's causing a problem. Uh, Progressive Field in Cleveland, home of the uh, Cleveland Indians, the ballpark suffered a drenching on Saturday, so they had a rain delay against the Toronto Blue Jays. So the game was was postponed. But as those games work, you roll out the tarps and you kind of wait to see yeah. if it blows over. As they did this, up on their Jumbotron, the players were playing Fortnite. <laughs> really? So they had two or three guys from the Indians just sitting in the clubhouse that were watching the Jumbotron playing Fortnite. I have – okay, because – it's a, it is it seems addictive. Yes. And what's you've played it? What is the addictive part of it? Um, I mean, it's not it, the problem. One problem is the games take a while. Well, I mean, if you're if you're good, yeah, if you're good. If not, you and uh, the the thing I find interesting is you're out, you're playing in the game. You mm-hmm. get in, and there's it's there's some team based elements to it. There's the one hundred versus one hundred, everyone versus everyone concept. Yeah. You go out. And if you are eliminated early, you sit around for like 35 minutes if you want to f- watch the game finish. If you're playing with your friends, right? Yeah. You're just going to sit there forever. Me, I just hit exit and get out because I'm not yeah, really you're gonna, playing yeah, with anybody. And you get – the neat thing about you is you get to play about 58 games a, an I'm, hour. I'm really bad. <laughs> but um, like last night I hopped on and tried to play, but it How, how me. far – what's the longest you've lasted? What person number were you? Oh, uh, what was it like? I can't remember what person. I was like eleventh. That's good. I was like, but most of that is because I was hiding. You, well, if you, you I wasn't not, really engaging. You can anybody. hide out while yeah. everybody else gets each other. I was out in the middle of nowhere. And I just sort of stayed there, and I was I was trying to figure out. I still don't know most of the keys yeah. on the keyboard. So I don't know to, how to move and function. You're trying to build a fort. Last night I tried to uh, play the game, but it had to update. Uh, which took forever. And by the time it was updated, I had to go to bed. So. It was your bedtime. Yeah, and if you played on your phone. Um, you can start with almost a 100% charge, and when you're done, your phone's at 40%. It just chews the battery up. Wow. And your phone's really hot, and I, that's that's the game I was in for about, you know, I was I finished 11th out of 100. And that was during church, apparently. No, this is just at home. Okay. Now, what does your wi-fi, wife do? To Wi-Fi keep at you? church is horrible. You can't play Fortnite <laughs> at church. I don't think they want you playing Fortnite Well, there's that, too. Yeah, so they run the they slow they throttle it down. Yeah, they're like, oh, there's Fortnite. Well, that's some uh, great information. Um, apparently, ball players would rather, in a way, play Fortnite than. And the celebration dances that yeah. are in Fortnite, those are showing up on the field I in know. football, in basketball, everything. and baseball. So yeah, soccer and kind players of taunting. Doing it. Oh wow, yeah. what's happening to this? So world? hey, breaking news: Fortnite is popular. Breaking news, and it's messing up, messing with teachers. Remember, you heard it here first. Schools are blocking it, and this, the, the game actually put up a, a warning. Do not play this as cool. Mm. <laughs> All right, more Fortnite news straight ahead. Plus, uh, we'll be talking about how corporate America can curb income inequality, make a few changes, and you can uh, equalize, or not fully equalize, but, you know, grease the skids a bit to help everybody else make money along the way. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Employees and companies are supposed to work hand-in-hand to increase productivity in the workplace, increase company earnings, and better the economy uh, in America. But just as parents and children both give and take from each other, employees and companies have a a special symbiotic relationship. What happens if employees or the company only act in their own self-interest? Who is the ultimate loser? I was able to speak more about this with Dr. Wallace J. Hopp, a distinguished university professor at the Ross School of Business not long ago. I began our conversation by asking him to talk about a metaphor he shared about a scorpion and a frog. The story that I started the article with is called the scorpion and frog parable. And I first saw it in a movie by Orson Welles called Mr. Arkadin. Anyway, it turns out that it's much, much older than that. It goes back centuries. But um, the version that that I told goes as follows. Um, A scorpion approaches a frog on a riverbank and says, will you give me a ride across the river? And the frog says, are you kidding? You'll sting me. Um, And the scorpion says, no, I won't, because if I do that, we'll both drown. And the frog says, well, okay, that's reasonable. And so uh, the scorpion hops on the frog's back, and they start out across the river. Halfway across, the scorpion stings the frog, and they both start to sink. And the frog says, why did you do that? And the scorpion says, I can't help it. It's my nature. Mm. So that's the parable. Now, the connection to um, what's going on in corporate America and the whole income inequality issue is that the policies that are leading to all of the gains from growth and productivity and the opening of international markets are going to the upper echelons of the, um, the, the corporate workforce. And as a result, we're basically undermining the very economy, the frog, as it were, that business relies on. And so what my argument is, is that executives are actually stinging the, um, their very lifeblood through these policies. Mm. And so the argument that I make is that if, if we could reverse some of those and treat the workforce as an investment rather than as an expense, that the companies could be more profitable, more successful, and the workforce could also be um, you know, better paid and more successful. And it's because the nature of the company, many think, is just to make money for the shareholder. And that's that's a relatively recent viewpoint. Is that um, of, of the role of a corporation? Yeah. It's so it's since about the 1980s, which is precisely when the divergence between productivity and blue collar worker pay started. Hmm. From 1945 to about 1975, 1980, productivity and worker pay rose in lockstep. But ever since, productivity has continued to go up and wages have stagnated. And that's precisely the point at which the shareholder value view of the firm became um, popular. That's but Prior to that, that wasn't the case. No, what yep. we used to have was more of a statesman view of the role of, of corporations, that they, they viewed their overall stakeholders, their customers, their employees, the communities yeah. that they worked in as also having a, a stake in the, the corporation. And, and therefore, you know, the leaders were responsible to all the stakeholders as opposed to only the shareholders. Yeah, kind of a stakeholder versus shareholder, because yeah, the entire community exactly. had a stake in every company, in every plant. Even if I didn't own the stock, interesting is I mean because we now hear about raging or uh, raising minimum wage. We hear about income inequality, and many think you know the rich. Uh, I mean the Wall Street talk and how Wall Street's getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and the middle class is disappearing. 
But what you're arguing as a professor is you're, you're saying, no, if we actually invest back in our people with a higher income, it will actually, in the end, make us more profitable. But how? But how? Okay, yeah. well, there's a couple of mechanisms by which that works. The first one is that, that unlike machines or you know, uh, 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 facilities, workers are not a fixed uh, resource. That is, the, the, the uh, value that they produce depends on a lot of things. Their motivation, their engagement, their training level, the systems that support them, all of that. And so what I see in my own research when I work with companies, my, my uh, focus is on, on developing high-performance production systems. Hmm. As I see a lot of disengaged, discouraged workers, high turnover rates, uh, and consequently, you know, a, a loss of productivity and quality in the work systems. But I see some firms that have gone another way. You know, for instance, take Shake Shack. This is a, a fast food company that pays their workers significantly above minimum wage in an industry where minimum wage is the norm. Mm -hmm. And what they get out of it is workers who stay longer. So the, the turnover rate lower. is, is yeah. lower, and, and that's costly. Turnover is very costly. And they see you know, better engagement in terms of customer service. And so they, what they lose in uh, higher wages, they get back in the savings in terms of the training and recruitment for new employees and in the, um, you know, the, the business that they generate mm. by you know, producing better customer service. That is – I mean, and you, you mentioned others, uh, Costco – Costco does a similar. So, if you compare Costco with Walmart, Costco pays substantially higher wages. Now, they hire fewer people per dollar of sales, mm -hmm. and so what they have done is they've basically set up a system with the uh, support structure that makes their workers more uh, productive. And that's, that's how they can afford to yeah. pay them such good uh, wages and benefits. But then what they do is it goes beyond just money. You can't just throw money at employees and say, well, they'll be, they'll be more productive. It, they also um, design the, the jobs that the employees do to make them more rewarding and more hmm. motivating. That is, you know, for instance, at Costco, the, the employees in the store have greater contact with customers. And so they, they feel more rewarded. I mean, what's rewarding in work is when you make a positive difference for another person. Interesting. And so the, yeah. the extent to which, you know, Costco is able to get their employees to be engaged in rewarding work and pay them higher benefits and, and, and uh, pay so that they stay around long enough to get trained and good at doing the kinds of things that they want to do leads to a system that really works for them. And if you look at just forget about, you know, all these other things we've talked about and just go look at shareholders, mm -hmm. you're better off being a shareholder of Costco than Walmart. Wow. The, the, Costco has outperformed Walmart in the stock market for years. And, it, and the engagement of those employees – is completely different. I mean, I have friends that work at Costco and I have friends that work at Walmart and my Costco friends are so excited. And I mean, and they, they were actually people that were in other professions and st still saw going to Costco as a great opportunity. It wasn't a yeah. fallback job. Yeah. Plus engagement, I know, is a, is a number that a lot of people are reading today. I think it was Pew or somebody, uh, Gallup or somebody reported about uh, engagement being down. Only 70 percent of employees – no, 30 percent of employees feel engaged in their job. Yeah. 
Which, which to me, I look at that, you know, as an industrial engineer, as a business professor, and I go, there's a tremendous opportunity right. there. That is an underutilized resource. If you have a disengaged workforce, then you are leaving money on the table. Our guest, uh, Dr. Wallace J. Hopp, is joining us. He's a distinguished university professor at the Ross School of Business at uh, the University of Michigan. He's been studying manufacturing and service sectors for over 30 years and has uh, has come up with a really, I think, powerful argument for why we might want to seriously consider raising income and wages um, simply to just improve society as a whole. Dr. Hopp, thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Matt. When you when you think about this, um, in the end, does it matter if I increase your salary? What if I just give you lots of parties? What if I give you free drinks at the office and we put a ping pong table in there so you can go yep. take breaks? Does that does does, uh, does that help? And uh, or would it be better that I just put more money in your pocket? You know, I, I think that it's hard to tell because most of the companies that have used the ping pong, free food, uh, you know, party in yeah. the office kind of strategy, uh, the Googles and Facebooks of the world have those kinds of fringe benefits. Also, pay significantly above market. They wage. do both, then, huh? They do both. Oh, yeah. Google pays eighteen percent above market. Facebook pays 25% above market. Holy cow. So they're, they're going in whole hog. I mean, they're basically saying we are going to get the best possible workers that we can, and we're going to entice them both with um, a, you know, excellent wages and an outstanding working environment. Huh. And most of the research we've done here at the Ross School um, says that, that the working environment is at, is, is at least as important as um, the, the wages. Okay, so we don't see many people saying we're going to pay below market wages, but have a really great working environment. Right. Other than say nonprofits, but nonprofits that is the market wage. Mm-hmm. Um, is yeah, so they're they're they are paying the market. The market's just lower than traditional. Right, exactly, that's exactly right. Is I guess um, one benefit though of paying employees more is kind of the Henry Ford model that they would then be able to buy more product. <laughs> Yeah, although that story is mistold a little bit. Is it? We, it's 100 years old, right? And we hear that, well, Ford paid the, the workers um, in order to enable them to afford to buy his cars. Now, this is a story that's personally, you know, relevant to me. My grandfather came to Michigan to work for Henry oh, Ford wow. for $5 a day wages, and I live in Michigan still. I know. Now but, look at you. There you go. Then um, thank heaven that he got those $5 a day wages and my family was able to get educated, which is another reason for, you know, the, the yeah, evils true. of income inequality is that when you get, you know, people not having access to education, then in a dynamic economy like we have, you know, it's, it's very hard to move up and, and you know, adjust with the changing uh, economy. But back to Henry Ford, the story was really that he instituted the famous moving assembly line back in 1913, uh, and um, the work was just boring as all get out, right? Because right. You know, you're oh. basically putting one part in, one part in, and it was tedious, and he had a lot of problems with absenteeism and turnover. And so uh, his uh, you know, uh, confidants talked him into uh, a high-wage policy as a mechanism for keeping uh, the employees in place and keeping them motivated. Hmm. And so he, you know, and he increased the wages from like 240 an hour to, uh, or 240 a day to five dollars a day. So wow. it was a huge increase. So first of all, he got really good people like my grandfather yeah. to come work for him. And secondly, they stayed, you know, in spite of the tedious work. 
So what Ford was doing was sort of half the equation that I said that Facebook and, and Google are following, is he paid uh, what we, uh, the economists call efficiency wages, that is wages that will get you the best people and keep them. Hmm. But, um, but the working environment was still pretty Horrible, poor. Horrible, yeah. Now, if you look at the, the numbers, the, the pay that he gave to the workers, you know, could not be justified by the, the sales that he would make in automobiles to his workforce. Right, okay. However, there was a very significant impact on the city of Detroit because they bought a lot more pizzas and, you know, shoes and, uh, you know, everything else. And so all of Detroit... Um, basically had more money in its its local economy. And because the other employers now were in competition with Ford, their wages went up as well. Hmm. And so what happened was that there was a whole economic stimulus that happened to the economy thanks to Ford's wage policy. Interesting. So part of my argument for you know, uh, getting away from these policies that foster such extreme um, income inequality is that the more money that's in the pockets of people who spend it most quickly, the working class, people who are buying necessities and so forth, are going to spend their money quickly and they're going to produce economic activity that's going to produce, you know, jobs and opportunities for everyone. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of a virtuous cycle once it gets started. And we saw what happened in Ford's era. And he described it as the greatest cost-saving innovation that he ever found was paying high wages. That's smart. So it was great for Ford. Right. It was also great for Detroit and the U.S. economy. Well, we saw that recently here in Utah. There was a big hullabaloo because Facebook wanted to move a plant somewhere, and we were in the running for it, but it was all underground. Nobody heard anything really about it. But I guess cities were giving tax breaks you know, to Facebook uh, allegedly to to bring him in, but then that makes all of the citizens so mad because should they be getting tax breaks? Yeah. But then I look at it and I think, but if Facebook's paying twenty five percent higher wages, yeah, because that's going to bring more money well, back into the city as well. So maybe we don't need to be so bad, mad at companies for getting some of those benefits to come to if if they're paying their people well. I, I think so, and maybe that's one way to to look at it. Is there have been some funny stories oh, about yeah. states, you know, fighting for a company that just moves back and forth across the state border <laughs> right. to get a, an additional tax break. Yeah. Uh, but if you tied it to you know the the wages that that the, the company pays, you know, and the jobs that they produce, you you could make an economic argument oh, for yeah. tax breaks to attract industry. But there's a there's a game that's going on here, right? Where employees get mad at the CEO that gets these huge uh, bonuses for stock buyback stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But so and that, so one side of it is the, is kind of the shareholder mentality where we've invested the money, so we get the first payout um, and the most payout. But there's another side of your your argument of the pay for productivity. We should be paying people for product productivity, but the other side of it is that you got to be productive. Well, that's right. And so you mentioned stock buybacks. Yeah. That, the problem with that is that's sort of an abuse of the metrics that they use to pay executives. Explain that. Executives. Explain explain stock buybacks for somebody okay. that so, wouldn't. So basically, an open market stock buyback is simply a situation where a firm uses its cash reserves to buy its own stock. You know, and so they basically take it out of the market. Shrinking ownership. Has, Exactly. So two, two effects happen. One is you've just made your stock more scarce, and that's going to tend to drive up the price. And two, when um, analysts calculate earnings per share, 
since there are fewer shares now out on the market, your earnings per share just went up. Mm-hmm. And so it makes your company look more attractive, and hence the stock price goes up. And, isn't, However, it, and, and the CEO is, and the leaders are the people that end up owning a lot of the stock exactly. that they can sell back. They own the stock or they have bonuses that are based on stock prices. Right. And so yeah. that's where I say it's an abuse of the metrics. Cause so they're trying to measure the productivity of the senior managers by looking at stock price. But when they allow this, which, by the way, stock uh, buybacks were illegal prior to 1982. They were considered manipulation really? yeah. of stock price. And the SEC passed a rule saying, no, that, you know, now they're, they're legal. Oh, and so uh, in that 2015, companies spent more than $500 billion buying back their own stock. Wow. The point I'm making is there is no productivity increase there, no. right? If the company doesn't produce any more value, they don't serve customers any better, they haven't... Their markets you know, aren't growing. Their cost right. structure, nothing. Nothing has improved. So it, it, it's a, a, you know, um, a shell game that they're playing. And so my argument is, so here's the place where I go even further than just saying that corporate America should be investing in their workforces. I think corporate America should be lobbying for sensible regulations because an individual company looks at stock buybacks and says, well, everybody else is doing them. Mm-hmm. I'm at a disadvantage if I don't. Right? Yeah, my yeah. stock is going to look artificially low or my you know, uh, senior executives are going to feel shortchanged because they didn't get the boost in their benefits and so forth. So I do them, too. But if companies would get together and lobby their congressmen to say, let's go back to an era in which stock buybacks are considered manipulation and we don't do them, now it's a level playing field for all mm-hmm. and we can compete. And I, and I want companies to compete, um, and, but they'll compete by investing in productivity, investing right. in their workforce and doing things that really produce value for customers. So they'd invest that same money in R&D, in their customers, in, in research which would actually grow the economy instead of just moving the paper in the economy. Precisely. Professor Wallace J. Hopp, uh, Distinguished University Professor at the Ross School of Business, located at the University of Michigan. Go check out uh, the Center for Positive Organizations. Uh, just Google that, and uh, you'll, get, you'll get the information you need. Wally Hopp, what a cool professor. Isn't it true? If we just take care of each other, we, we, we go farther. We make more. We at least also can feel good about what we're doing every day. Sometimes just being connected with each other makes it a better job, makes it a better day for all of us. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour number one. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. And it's right there, folks, in business as well. We'll be back. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back friends you know they say that uh, one of the biggest problems uh, that humans have is the fact that we have expectations right if you expect certain things, you, you're going to go looking for those things. And um, so today I wanted to spend a little bit of time seeing if we can't help each other to manage our expectations a little bit more. Now, um, when people come in and see me, a lot of times they, they, there's this gap, I call it, uh, the gap of pain where somebody wants one thing and they keep getting another thing. And the gap between what they want and what they get that gap, if it's a big gap, causes big pain. If it's a little gap, causes little pain. But we always have a choice when we have um, 
either lower expectations or, uh, you know, mismanaged expectations or our expectations are too high of the people around us. We have two choices usually, and, and one choice is to, to pick up our game, we, and which is what most of us try to do is get the other person to just pick up their game, to do more, to get closer to the expectation that I have. Another choice is that we actually could just lower our expectation to what is actually being delivered, right? And, and just, you know, just accept what the person around you is giving you instead of keeping your goal of trying to get them to pick up their game. Let's just accept that they, they can only do it this way. And, um, you know, that actually ticks a lot of people off as I talk to them because I'm like, why don't we just, why don't we just, you know, like, here's an example. Um, let's say a husband used to have a great job and, um, as he would work and make money for the family, let's say he was making a hundred thousand dollars and, uh, he, he, he really did a great job, made a hundred thousand dollars. And then all of a sudden lost that job. And the expectation is that he should go out and be able to make a hundred thousand dollars. So I had a client once whose husband wasn't making a hundred grand. He was making about $30,000 after he was making a hundred thousand dollars. And um, for 15 to 16, 17 years, all he was making was thirty to $40,000. And the spouse was very upset about it because he really could do so much more. He really, he really could. And uh, she kept trying every way she could to get him to go out and get a better job and do a, you know, finish his resume and finish that one last class so he could get a degree and then make his hundred grand and and she finally came in um, and saw me and, and basically said, what am I supposed to do? He just – he just he's too lazy. He won't go be the $100,000 guy that I thought he was. And I asked, well, is, is it possible that he really isn't a $100,000 earner? Is it possible that what he really is is a thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 earner? Is that possible? And she's like, well, no. He made $100,000. And I'm like, how much how – how long did he make $100,000? And she said, well, two years. Well, and, and how long has he made $35,000? And she's like, well, 15 or 16, 17 years. And I'm like, well, it sounds like to me that really he's just more of a $35,000 man, isn't he? If we're just going by the data. Well, you want me to say that? Yeah, I mean, but he has the ability. We know he does. And I'm like, well, I mean, we've, we've, we saw a moment of it. Maybe he was just really lucky those years. You know, maybe he just got into the perfect job and it was just, no, he could do better. And I'm like, but in the end, just so you notice, it's it's not about what he's earning. There's a reason you're frustrated that he's not earning more, right? Well, yeah, because now it means that I have to earn more and I have to, and I don't want all the pressure. And now I have to make all the bills work. And I'm like, so why don't you just accept that he's a $40,000 man and and figure out what we can do to make it easier for you to make money, which is in your ability to control it, or your your ability to manage the bills better. Anyway, she went back, talked to her husband, and, and apologized to him. And she said, I'm so sorry that I'd kept expecting you to earn more and more money. And the reality is, is it's I'm just frustrated because I'm not able to be the kind of person I want to be and it has stress on me and I'm sorry. I just need to accept that you're a $35,000 a year income and and start figuring out ways so that we can start living that way. And then he's like, hold it. What do you mean I can't earn 100000 She's like, well, no. I mean, the data just shows you can't earn it. And 
Of course I can earn it. Weirdest thing in the world. Within two years, the man's now making 80 grand. And what changed it? It's simply she started to change, realizing instead of getting her joy and her happiness from someone else making some change, and then instead of just instead of just hoping for something that wasn't ever going to change, she just accepted what was happening, actually accepted the gift she was getting, which was 35 grand. And it changed something. It changed something in her and changed something in him. She actually started being appreciative of what she had, and he actually started giving more. Change. It happens when we look at our expectations. So instead of trying to expect the entire world to change for you, what if you could just get to a point where you accepted what you could do and and just put it back in your circle of influence and managed your expectations? I, I promise just that simple change of what you can do, focusing on what you can influence and being appreciative of what you do have, just those few little changes will go a very long way to creating a healthier, happier life. Anyway, just a little insight from your coach, your guide on the side. That's why we do the program, to help give you the tools you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. According to reports, Americans are taking fewer vacation days now than at any point in the past four decades. And 61% of Americans who do plan on taking their paid vacation days say that they will be continuing to do work, sending emails and making business calls while they are away. Isn't that a bit of a reality check? Where have the days of road trips to the Grand Canyon and annoying scouting songs gone? Dr. Shimmy Kang joined us not long ago to talk about uh, the no vacation nation that we're all turning into. I began the interview by expressing my shock at the number of Americans who don't take advantage of vacation days. Yes, actually, that term no vacation nation um, was coined by the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And um, they really looked at over the last um, 30 years and found that um, you know, the so many things are tied into um, no vacation, but the bottom line, it was um, an economic uh, argument where it was both stressed employees and employers were having to endure greater turnover and lower productivities uh, when their workers were taking little time off. Um, and so that was the economic finding, mm. but as a psychiatrist and um, a mental health professional, I can certainly tell you, and as a medical doctor, we know that um, vacation has a lot of benefit on our physical health, um, better heart heart health in particular, um, and certainly our mental health. And uh, so we really have to look at it as a uh, as something that's not just a luxury or a leisure, but um, really important for our physical, mental health, and our economies. It's it, it, it is. I mean, it seems like I know even in my own world when I don't get a vacation. Someone's going to pay for it. So something's going to happen, whether it's my health or my quality of work's going to drop. But a lot of this, it seems like, too, that the workload is going up. We have a heavier workload. And, and is it is it just that people feel like they can't leave or is it feel like do they just feel like they no one's can do it like they can do it? Yes, both of those. Um, the most common reasons people decide not to take 
their vacation. And, and also to um, underline that these are actually paid vacation days yeah. um, that people aren't taking. So they're, they're built into their employee packages. They're paid for them. They're expected in, in, on writing at least that they would take them. And the top three reasons people don't, um, they say that when they get back, they actually have a heavier workload. Now, I've certainly experienced that myself. Um, they also feel that no one else can do their particular task. And then the third is they simply can't afford to take it. So even if they're getting paid for a vacation, vacations are expensive. Um, you know, the flights, the hotels, right. all of that um, in addition. So those are the top three reasons why um, Americans are choosing not to take their paid vacation. Do, and companies, do they really want us to? I mean, the data there, I guess, is showing that we're less productive. But it also seems like some bosses want you to just keep plugging away. Yeah, it depends. I think I really think it depends on what the company um, is hiring you for. And, um, you know, you may have heard these terms that, you know, we've moved from, you know, uh, in our human history of economies, we've moved from agricultural era to manufacturing era to IT. And now we're in what's called the conceptual era, the era of ideas. And people are being hired for their brains, for their ideas, for their concepts. Um, the key 21st century skills are creativity, collaboration, communication, and critical thinking. These, these are the skills that are on every job posting and, and people are getting evaluated for. Um, so companies who really uh, recognize that, um, that is their talent. And they don't want that brain talent to be exhausted, to be stressed, to be um, overworked. And I think that we're seeing a greater shift for um, understanding and, in fact, mandating vacation um, in companies that are really dealing with concepts. I think, on the other hand, we still have, um, you know, manufacturing-style workplaces where, you know, it really is um, perhaps kind of a tedious, mindless task, and maybe perhaps it's not as important there but um, for the actual workplace. But then it is important for the mental and physical health that connects to turnover because nobody wants to hire and uh, rehire, go through the interview process, and retrain employees. That takes a lot of toll oh, on yeah. companies. Uh, so I think that now that we're in the conceptual area and as we go further into this century, um, people are being paid for their minds more than ever before. Mm. And and the funny thing is, you know, that can't be stretched, right? I mean, eventually you need quality minds, quality ideas, not just quantity. Exactly. Yeah. So I, um, my book is coming out. It's called The Self-Motivated Kid. And in it, I talk a lot about um, overpressured kids, and it's true for adults, but um, being too busy, being too busy is not a status symbol. Um, it's not a symbol of how important or how smart you are. Um, in fact, when we, and we all walk around saying we're too busy, but our brains, when we actually look at the optimal functioning of our brains, it occurs in a state of balance. So I have a slide that I use and I talk about in, in the self-motivated kid is, and it's a bell curve and we need some sense of, of course, busyness and stimulation. Um, but when we have too much, um, the curve goes down and, and our optimal thinking, our optimal mental performance, intellectual, cognitive, our communication, our critical thinking, all of that declines. And so I tell people I work with and speak to, I say, look, if you're saying you're too busy to, um, to rest, 
too busy to sleep um, and not too busy to go on vacation, then I'm sorry, you're just you're not just too busy to be healthy, but then you're too busy to be brilliant. Mm. You're too busy to be in your optimal performance, um, and you're hindering your own potential. That's interesting because, yeah, really, if you can't even get out on a vacation and see the value of it and find a way there, then you're already behind. Exactly. And I think we, you know... Um, you know, we're learning a lot more about the brain and, um, and how we perform optimally. And, and we know it's, it's like um, every other part of the body. Like if you give the analogy of a muscle, you know, we need to work a muscle to keep it strong. We also need to, to rest a muscle. Um, and if we don't do it, um, we'll get injured. And I think when we, you know, a great analogy for, for mental fitness is physical fitness. And all the elite athletes know that they need to um, intersperse activity with rest and um, elite mental performers, um, individuals who uh, really want to perform at their top game also have to start incorporating that. And they are, in fact, um, doing so. Mm. It really is. um, It it seems like it's a first world problem, but it's also kind of just the new world problem where we we can always, if, if if today's currency is just our creativity and our thinking, you know, we might just keep adding more and more situations and places where they're trying to draw on our brain. And in the end, you're just going to dry out. You're just going to exactly. wither on yeah. the vine. I think New World is a great concept. And, you know, we can't um, forget technology is a big factor in here because um, even when people are going on vacation, you know, as we've all seen at the poolside, there's laptops and um, you know, mobile phones plugged in. Uh, I was, you know, you go to an airport now and you can't even find an outlet. Uh, so technology has taken work with us um, and it's made it harder to get away um, from work. But on the flip side, if you use it appropriately, you know, people can um, find um, perhaps more opportunities to, um, um, to get that downtime, to get that rest hmm. uh, because they perhaps can work from home or they can, um, stay a little bit longer on their vacation and send in those emails while they're traveling. But um, so it's really a love-hate relationship with technology. It depends on how we choose to use it. Oh, it's so true. And simply because we can doesn't mean we should, and yet we do. And, and, and so some of this is what, that's where we need to use the creativity of our own brain, huh? Just to learn to say no at times. Exactly. Yeah, I think that um, you know and. Again, when, we, when people talk to me, they, they t- say, well, you know, I'm a really ambitious person or, um, you know, in, in my book, The Self-Motivated Kid, I talk about parents who are hyper-competitive. Um, and we know that um, an overwhelmed brain, an overwhelmed brain um, doesn't just uh, show poor decision-making skills when we study it. Um, we show it, we see a lack of creativity. Um, we see an increased um, inflammatory response um, in the body. Um, it's been connected to all kinds of health disorders like depression, anxiety, um, even our physical health, autoimmune problems, insomnia, of course, um, is a health epidemic. And, um, you know, there's more Americans on um, sleeping pills than ever before, but there's more tired Americans than ever before. Um, And so part of the solution to insomnia and the sleeping pill epidemic is for everyone to get a bit more sleep. Uh, And so we see accelerated cell aging, cancer, diabetes, all these physical health problems, too. So it's not just impacting our optimal performance or creativity or 21st century skills, but our basic fundamentals of health. 
That, again, was uh, Shimmy Kang, who is the author of The No Vacation Nation. Um, it's, it's time, folks. We got we to gotta keep putting oil into the lamp, right, if you want to keep it burning. You can't just keep burning the lamp and eventually run out of oil and then be mad and like, oh, what happened? If you want to keep the fire burning, you got to be putting oil into it. So we need breaks once in a while. We'll continue the journey. Sometimes the breaks could just be listening to us, and sometimes that doesn't even feel like a break. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer and uh, lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday morning to you. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca doing what we can to give you the best insights, the information you need today. We're going to be talking about how to divorce-proof your marriage. Be talking with an actual divorce mediator or divorce attorney and uh, giving you the insights that uh, James has found from divorcing people. Basic, simple ideas for how to divorce proof your marriage. Our thoughts and prayers go out with the Bush family. Apparently, uh, Barbara Bush is um, is ill, uh, has failing health and apparently is not seeking any further treatment, is now just at home resting. And the father's family's gathering around. That's really always uh, an incredibly poignant moment when you're, you know, you're done and you're saying, "Okay, I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to fight this anymore." She's yeah. been in the hospital, came home. She's a very private woman. Doesn't realize or doesn't see why anybody wants to fuss about this. Her husband, President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, has been battling Parkinson's and is in a wheelchair. We hear about his physical uh, ailments, but uh, we didn't know Barbara was sick, apparently is failing in health and has decided she's just no longer going to go back to the hospital, just wants to ride this one out. So our prayers are with her and the Bush family. Um, man, it's just, it, honestly, you it, no matter what your politics, she's a great woman, and uh, this transcends all the things in, in the world political, which is maybe what this country needs, to be able to celebrate some... Um, some of the some of the great people that have made a big impact in our lives. Um, we'll be talking about that today. Also, get back to some more insights on how to uh, make sure you're taking the vacations you need. The No Vacation Nation uh, author uh, Shimmy Kang will be will be replaying some of our interviews with her as well. So much to cover there. If, if they could make the process of getting to the vacation yeah. better. Oh yeah, airports, driving. Uh-huh. It just seems like all of it's just a hassle. I've I've been uh, to uh, Utah, Wash, or, uh, Wyoming, and Nevada recently speaking, and I'm telling you, a, a, an hour and a half, two hour drive to Wyoming was the most beautiful, great experience I think I've had traveling in a long time, versus uh, a one and a one hour flight to Vegas. Nightmare. Ugh. So I've decided I'm going to just drive more. We also realized we haven't taken our kids on a car trip. You know why? Why? It's brutal. <laughs> but we're going to drive for 12 hours. No one says yay. My my it's wife bad. on our drive through Wyoming, my wife's like, "I don't know that I've ever seen this." Wyoming? And she's lived right next to Wyoming. I'm like, "You've never gone up to get fireworks?" <laughs> Cuz there's you can buy illegal fireworks in Wyoming. Not illegal anymore. Yeah, yeah. 
Are they not illegal? They're illegal in Utah. No. Oh, really? Yeah, we have, we're a free-for-all state again. Okay, we're, we're back also to... a high-fire danger state, but yeah. that's fine. Yeah, everyone in California is like, I wouldn't buy fireworks. <laughs> That'll just burn the whole town down. So um, maybe, it's, maybe you need to be thinking this year about a little uh, travel vacation. Get in your car. Take your kids to the Grand Canyon. Yellowstone. Yellowstone. I was talking to my church class yesterday about where they've all been, and my cute little church class went to Japan. Oh, wow. Uh, Mexico, Florida. This is all for spring break. Of course. And uh, someone went to Europe. Hmm. And then some went to, you know, Disneyland. Of course. But, uh, and I'm like, so anybody, you know, anybody go to Jackson Hole? Anybody go to Yellowstone Park? Nobody. Nobody gets in their car and drives to Yellowstone. Come on. I got stuck, uh, stuck on the, what was it, the ski tram uh, Jackson Hole. Oh, see? When I was a kid. That's that a good was, memory. It was fun. We hung out for a few hours and then came back down the mountain. Do you want to hear my Jackson Hole story? Go ahead. I swallowed a piece of ice and was choking on it, and then somehow the ice turned, and it had a hole in it, and I could breathe through the hole of ice. Did it whistle? Uh, no, but I'm like, this is scary. My neck is freezing, and I can't breathe. So I went and... Uh, not to be graphic, somehow got it out of my system right. by hurling. But it's ice, though, right? Wouldn't it and just melt? went and sat down, and then I noticed nobody even noticed I did that. I could have died, ah. and nobody would have known. How did he die? I don't know, but he had a lot of water in his mouth. Just Matt being dramatic again. Sheesh. Those were the days <laughs> when nobody knew you were even choking. That's why you've got to make the international sign, I'm choking, right. by putting your hands on your throat. True. Instead of just hitting everyone around you. Not to uh, mention it might melt the ice. That's right. Plus it might just get the ice out of you. Oh, Heimlich maneuver. Not good. Unless you need it, of course. Let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? U.S. is preparing a new round of sanctions against Russia to be announced sometime today. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley said Sunday in an interview on CBS Face the Nation, Haley said the sanctions were part of a strong message the Trump administration had sent on the use of chemical weapons in Syria with Russia caught in the middle for propping up Syrian President Bashar okay, al-Assad. Okay, so these sanctions are for Syrian propping. Yes. Not for the poisoning event. No, that was before. Yeah, That was the other sanctions, and not for messing with the U.S. elections. How far can they go with these sanctions? They just keep, there's more and more and more yeah. sanctions. They, well, I think it's because they're sanctioning individuals on some of these. Some of them are sanctioning the whole country. Okay. So, sure. different kinds. So, more sanctions. Uh, as it says in an earlier interview with Fox News Sunday, Haley said U.S. relations with Russia had become very strained in recent days, but Russia's involvement with all the wrong actors in Syria, Iran, and Venezuela continued to be a problem. Venezuela? Yeah, they're back. That in, in yeah, there. throw that out there. Right now, they don't have a ver- very good friends, and right now, the friends they do have are causing them harm. I think they're feeling that, she said. So, more uh, sanctions. It's when you've got your kid and they keep playing with the. The really harmful friends. Yeah. But you want them to play with the good friends, but the good friends keep sanctioning them. <laughs> so hard. Other news, deadly snow-moving, uh, slow-moving storms generated record or near-record snowfall and low temperatures in the U.S. Uh, Midwest and tornadoes further east Sunday, <laughs> leaving airline travelers stranded thousands without power. Michigan... Snowfall expected to reach 18 inches in some areas. Wow. 300,000 homes and businesses without power because of an ice storm, most of them in the southeast of the state. Mm. Large areas of Detroit were without power. Customers were not expected to have it back on until uh, late last night. Not sure where it is. It says working to have 90% of outages restored by Tuesday. 
Really? Yeah, so, you know, just kind of sit tight Monday. You're fine. By the way, Becca was giving it a high five. She was excited for this. I just, I love hearing about the snow. Do you? Mm-hmm. It makes me feel really proud. Well, especially when you're here in Utah and your family are back in Minnesota. Right. Yep. And they're the ones that will be hit by this. And we got snow the other day, and it was, you know, a really big deal. Yeah. And, and I mean, we get snow in June sometimes. Oh, yeah. So this is... Green Bay got 23 inches of oh, snow. wow. Minnesota St. Paul area, uh, tw- 21 inches of snow. See, the, but these places can handle snow. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It really isn't quite as big of a deal there because you've got the plows out. It's of those ice way. storms, too, that you have back there that we don't have here. To me, an ice storm would be the worst thing on Earth. Those make driving really difficult, yeah. And then that's where the power outages come, right? As it weighs down the power lines and trees yeah. and everything falls. Yeah. yeah. On Friday, the weather system produced 17 reports of tornadoes in Arkansas, Louisiana, Missouri, and Texas. Four people injured, 160 buildings damaged. Ooh, it's kind of crazy. Weather. So, yeah, weather. That's, but again, it's, it's the whole global warming thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is the impact. What they, what the science? So, says. Now we just need a hundred more years of this to know that, for some to know that this is real. <laughs> a Pennsylvania food manufacturer is recalling almost nine thousand pounds of ready-to-eat salad products following an E. coli outbreak that has spread to several states Uh-oh. and sickened dozens of people. Uh, the fresh food mart manufacturing, based in Freedom, PA, is uh, recalling the prepackaged products after learning last week of the contamination. Again, it's romaine lettuce. Uh, the Department of Agriculture put out an alert Saturday. Officials said the recall products have not been tied to any E. coli-related illnesses. The recalls, recall seems that the items were shipped to retailers in Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia and mm. had sell-by dates of April 13th to April 16th. Oh, boy. So today's their sell-by date expiration. So you can still eat it, but, you know. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration said Friday that the outbreak, which began in mid-March, may have been caused by bagged and pre-chopped romaine lettuce grown in the Yuma, Arizona region. Wow. Near the border to Southern California and distributed to retailers across the U.S. So you just check your bag. Yeah. says Yuma, but, I mean, then there's California, too. If you're getting your lettuce from Yuma, Arizona for the next little while, you ought to be careful. Or, or, I mean, Matt, you are a doctor. Does this give us a free pass to not eat salad for the next few weeks? No, eat your salad. Eat your salad. He's the wrong kind of doctor. This is romaine lettuce, and it's from Yuma, Arizona. You say he's the wrong kind of doctor? He's the wrong kind of doctor. I feel like we should all just play it safe and not eat salad. Yeah. So the ag- the agency has not identified specific farms or companies that grew, supplied, or distributed the contaminated vegetables because I don't know if they know or maybe they're just keeping it quiet. Who knows? 35 people from 11 states have become sick. 22, including three people suffering from kidney failure, Holy have been hospitalized, cow. according to the CDC, but no one has died as Hold of on, yet. But, but this is just this – was, this was because of human waste. That's E. coli. Huh. Wow. Yeah. It's just, but the problem is lettuce has a shelf life that's rather short. Yeah. And this happened in mid-March. It came out. I was asking, you know, since I eat romaine lettuce daily. No, yeah. You're addicted. Should I stay in my habit so that we can have a nice story for the show if I do become contaminated? Or should I play it safe? You decided I should, you know, sacrifice for the show. Yeah, do it. if you. I mean, if you want to get, get, get ratings. Get E. coli if necessary. You got to E. coli up. Um, but nothing happened. Yeah, bummer. And now my wife was purchasing more lettuce over the weekend, and See? she's like, yeah, we'll yeah. just go ahead. We'll get you one way or another. It'll be fine. So 
Uh, just, just word for the wise there. Be careful. We'll talk about an egg recall next hour. Uh, a Connecticut man is accused of robbing a bank and going to Taylor Swift's Rhode Island mansion to throw cash over the fence to impress her, according to police reports. <laughs> In the current case, police say that Bruce Rowley of Derby, Connecticut, is charged with robbing an, a bank on April 4th. Police say it seemed he wanted to propose to Swift, so he drove about 60 miles to her Rhode Island home and started throwing some of the roughly 1,600 he's charged with stealing over the fence. Rowley was pursued by police to Connecticut, a Rhode Island police, back to Connecticut where he was arrested. That's where he allegedly told the police about his plan. Really? To impress Taylor Swift with $1,600. Did it work? No. no. I mean, yeah, that didn't work. <laughs> There's got to be other ways. 1000 Maybe she's out of your league. Maybe. I mean, I don't want to make him feel bad. Maybe the, the fence was a clue. Well, that's one way to do it. There you go. Up next, we'll give you more ideas on how to impress Taylor Swift, plus how to divorce-proof your marriage with a real divorce attorney. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, love stronger right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, love is a beautiful thing, but when things go sideways in the relationship, it can get ugly. According to the American Psychological Association, around 45% of first marriages end in divorce. And our next guest is uh, James Sexton. He's a divorce lawyer in New York City and the author of the book, If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late. He's here today to help give us some ideas uh, that, that, you know, that would help us divorce-proof our marriage. James, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Talk about it. When and I've been a divorce mediator many moons ago, and I there is that look in their eye when they come in your office. It, it's uh, it's kind of it's almost too late. You know, I I, I, um, I knew about your background as a divorce mediator, and it always gratifies me to see you know one of us that gets over the fence and, <laughs> and, and, and leaves the profession. Right. Exactly. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it is. You know, by the time people are in my office, by the time they've taken the step where, where divorce is anything other than kind of a, a fleeting thought when their spouse does something boneheaded, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a far along place. And, right. and that was kind of the idea of the book was to say that, you know, no single raindrop is responsible for the flood. But, you know, we can reverse engineer by looking at the ways that marriages commonly go wrong and, and try to figure out when the raindrop started and if there was something we can do to course correct. That's it's. And to me, you bring a great insight, I think, as, as we talk about it, because simply that the, who would know better than a divorce attorney um, what what kind of are, are bringing people to this point? What, what do you see are two or three of the things that are the most common um, uh, problems that, that need to be fixed right up front? Sure. Well, I think there's the big things, and then there's the little things. And I think the little things obviously lead to the big things. So the big things, obviously, are infidelity is huge. That's probably the biggest one. Um, you know, financial impropriety is probably the second one in terms of, of, of not sharing with your spouse what's going on with finances, screwing up the finances, getting the family into debt, you know, uh, fraud, you know committing fraud, essentially, with money that was supposed to be joint money. And the third, you know, would be um, any kind of, you know, violence or any kind of temper issues or substance abuse issues that usually are tied to that. Hmm. But the small things that lead to those big things, 
are the things I'm kind of the most interested in because I, I, I really do believe people come to my office, they say, well, I want a divorce because he's sleeping with his secretary. And that's, you know, hey, that's a, a very legitimate reason to consider a divorce. Right. But why has that happened? Why has that disconnection happened? And that's a lot of those little things. And those little things are really as simple as just stopping doing those small gestures of kindness and love that we do early in a relationship and, and losing the plot of the story you were trying to write with your partner. And, and that's really something that, that happens with time. It's very natural. It's very understandable. But it is incredibly toxic in a long-term way to a relationship. And sometimes by the time we realize we've lost the plot, we've gone so far from where we were that, that, that finding our way home is really, really hard. And that's how people end up in my office. No, absolutely. I think that's so – it's so true. Is, do you see that – um, can this be preempted uh, when it comes to doing or fixing this before people get married, or are they just too caught up in the hormones and the chemistry to really see it clearly? Well, I think, you know, I actually believe that people who are getting married should absolutely have conversations about divorce before they get married. I think when they first get engaged, because what do they have going for them at that moment? They have an abundance of optimism and affection. You know, really in that moment of, of, of uh, you know, engagement and when you're about to get married, in theory, you're supposed to be as excited about this relationship as you'll probably ever be. You know, you're not fully settled into it in the way that, you know, a comfortable pair of jeans after many years is going to feel. And that's what a long-term marriage, I guess, is supposed to feel like is like something that just, you know, you get comfortable with over time. But that abundance of optimism that you have in those early days of a relationship or engagement, those can be leveraged. And I think if you talk at that point, about what are the things that might make us feel far apart from each other. What are we doing right? You know, when, when you make me happy, here are the things you do that make me happy. Here are the things I worry someday might cause problems between us. Here's where we might see things differently. And right now it's just a mild irritation, but maybe someday um, it'll change. And I think even having candid conversations about things like sex, you know, talking about, hey, this is what I like about it. This is what I like about the frequency of our sex life. These are the changes that I assume will happen with our sex life, and these are changes that I don't think would be okay in our sex life. And the more that we talk about, you know, the baseline, then the more we're going to understand when we're getting further from it. You know, we don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't a fish. <laughs> you know, when you're in something, you just don't see it clearly. And I think after a certain amount of time in marriage, people just don't see their marriage so clearly. So having a conversation about how we're going to have conversations in this marriage is a really, really smart move for, for people in early relationships to do. Yeah, it really is. It's the conflict, too, that because we each have such different conflict resolution patterns, we have different ways of approaching the conflict. Sure. And it's, sometimes with couples, um, you know, they think that having conflict is a failure. It's a sign that the relationship isn't a good thing. But the research seems to prove otherwise. Having conflict yeah. is a normal thing. Absolutely. And I, I think we're really unfair to marriages in this culture, because one of the things that, that we say, you know, both explicitly and also just in the way we react to conflict in a marriage, is if your marriage isn't perfect, it's, it's awful. You know, it's binary. It's like if your spouse doesn't do everything right in that marriage, then right. it's, it's not a good marriage. And that's just so unfair. I mean, to have one person be the perfect parent, partner, financial partner, travel companion, bed companion, um, you know, housemate. 
in one person all the time. We, we create this pressure on people that, you know, you have to be my soulmate. And, and of course, in entertainment media, you know, everyone's perfect. Every love is perfect. Mm. Or it's, you know, a joke that it's so awful, you know, and that the wife can't stand the husband and the husband can't stand the wife. We really need to be honest with each other about the fact that it's okay. They're going to be, the goal in marriage is not, in my estimation, equality. The goal is equity. You know, mm. equity and equality are different things. Equity means in the long term, did everyone have a fair allotment of things? Whereas equality is we have to be exactly the same to each other and accomplish the same things. There are times where your spouse is going to need more than you need. There's going to be times where you need more than your spouse needs. And that's the beauty of the dance of marriage if you're doing it the right way. Yeah, no, that's great insight. Again, we're speaking with James Sexton, who is a lawyer and um, an author of the book, If You're In My Office, It's Already Too Late. Uh, if you go to nycdivorces.com, you can find his website where he has all of the information about his book and his practice. He's walking us through some ways that we could divorce-proof our marriage, make it a healthier um, uh, experience, I think, to the degree that we can divorce-proof something. It's, uh, it's, it's not—life isn't easy, and there's always curveballs that are thrown to us. James, what do you think about technology? How do you see technology impacting um, the marriage uh, in the 21st century? You know, I, I think social media, unfortunately, and, and I, I hate to be someone piling on Facebook, although it seems to be the popular thing to do right at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, I really do think that, that we're doing ourselves a tremendous disservice by, by, you know, Facebook in particular, and I talk a lot in my book about how if we were going to create an infidelity generating machine, it would basically look exactly like Facebook, <laughs> because it gives us this ability and encourages us you know, even suggests to us that we connect with people from our past who we had romantic connections with. Ask almost anybody if they're being honest. When they first get Facebook, the first thing they do is log on and see what their ex-boyfriends and girlfriends are up to and see what they look like and see what's happening with them. But I have hundreds of divorces that I've handled that started with an affair that started with Facebook. And it gives people a way to communicate, you know, clandestinely with each other and have plausible deniability about it. But, but even greater than that, is the, is the reality that what we're doing is presenting a curated version of our lives to people. You know, we're presenting this idealistic, you know, all the best pictures of us, all the best pictures of our marriage and the moments of our life, all the best meals that we've eaten. It's mm-hmm. all going up on social media, and it's resulting in people feeling very dissatisfied. There's tons of research on how people are feeling very dissatisfied with their lives because they're comparing it to the highlight reel of someone else's life. So instead of having really honest conversations with each other, you know, with our community, with church, with friends, about what's really happening in the day-to-day lives of our, of our friends and, and having real marriage role models to compare our marriages to, we're comparing it to the highlight reel of someone else's marriage that they've curated themselves. And of course, that's going to leave people feeling very dissatisfied, and that opens up a lot of doors to things that lead to my office. Oh, so true. And, and, and two, we... You know, some people are really good curators and some aren't. Some are right. – um, but but it, it does see – and there is interesting data about how our, our self-esteem is impacted right. and especially because we're doing this privately and we might even be doing it when, you know, I, I could be, you know, connecting to my spouse, having a good conversation, watching a show together. But instead, the the technology tends to pull us apart and we're both a little depressed, both dejected and now we're surfing the web. Right. And, and you know, it, it's amazing because like many technologies, 
these have the potential to connect us in tremendous ways. I mean, there, there are incredible opportunities with the interconnectedness that's created by social media and the, the ability to have an audience of one's thoughts that, that exists with social media. We really could be using it as an opportunity to share openly with each other. I mean, I, I've said frequently that the people in my office very often have never had marriage role models. Their own parents' marriage didn't work out. You know, their own parents, uh, uh, you know, maybe didn't have the best marriages or maybe they did stay married but white-knuckled it miserably, you know, which is not the goal. The goal of marriage is not to stay married. The goal of marriage is to stay happily married if possible. So it really is a shame because it would be a great way for people to share honestly and connect openly about the reality of their marriages and, and to learn, you know, what, what is a good marriage? How do I compare my marriage to a real other marriage? To What am I doing? What habits of mind are successfully married people doing? You know, I, I, I don't know what makes a good marriage, but I know what makes a bad marriage. You know, I, I can't tell you exactly what intelligence is, but I can spot stupid <laughs> a mile away. And, and so that's, I think, what we need. We need more opportunities to, to, to share with each other what, what a good marriage looks like, because otherwise we're just looking at this curated version that's just, it's dishonest. Absolutely. What is your, I guess I, you, have, you have a suggestion called the Hit Send Now suggestion. Yeah, I, I, you know, this is a, a function of email. I, I was, um, you know, I, I'm in a, a line of work being a divorce lawyer that I very often have to give people bad news and, and uh, share with them, you know, things that, that are hard to share with them. And so one of the things I've found is that when I send someone an email, you know, give somebody a chance to, to reflect on it, digest it, and then call me back to discuss it. And I know that there's this sort of feeling, and I'm sure you can all relate to it, that when you send an email, because once you hit send, you can't unsend it. It's like yeah. you hit send now, and that thing goes out into the world, and you can't take it back. And so I was thinking about this in the context of relationships and how do we, how do we talk to each other? How do we talk to our spouses better? And I found myself thinking that, you know, isn't it a great opportunity, email, for us to, to carefully write out our thoughts to our partner and to send it to them and to maybe even make the subject heading of the email, hit send now or hitting send now. And just make this, a, 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 you know, have a conversation about how we're going to have conversations and, and just share with our partner these little things that happen that make us feel connected or make us feel disconnected because it, it gives us a roadmap to each other that changes from day to day and gives us the ability to really, like I said, stay connected. You know, no one ever means to end up in my office. We, we live in a culture now where you can pretend, you know, you meant to do all kinds of things, but no one can pretend they meant to get divorced. And so I, I think the best possible way to kind of keep your, your heart's GPS, you know, in the right place is to just stay connected. And so Hit Send Now is just a way of just sharing these little things with your partner, whether they're bad things, you know, something that they, they did that maybe, you know, sat wrong with you, or, or maybe even it's a good thing. You know, last night when you, you told me that, you know, you looked, I looked handsome in my suit, you know, I just want you to know that meant a lot to me. It's nice to me that, that I'm still attractive to you. Just share, you know, just have those conversations, but have them in a way that's non-confrontational, you know, a face-to-face -face conversation or phone conversation, you feel like you have to react right away. Whereas with an email, people have a chance to digest. And if there's a discussion about sending these kinds of emails, people can, can say, okay, I don't, I don't want you to respond right away. I want you to digest it. And then if we want to talk about it, we can when you're ready to talk about it. Yeah. Now, that's, that's huge, isn't it? And, again, that just creates, uh, as John Gottman talks about, those bids yeah. and turns. We keep bidding and showing affection for each other. And then the, the key is, too, if you receive such an email or such a text, you've got to make sure you turn back and, and, and return the favor. 
Right, and that's the challenge. I mean, it's, 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 look, it's hard to know yourself. It's hard to know another person. You know, it's hard to stay connected to yourself and to your truth and to stay connected to another person's truth. So, so I, I really think that we make a mistake by thinking that we're just going to be naturally good at this somehow and that if we lose our way, that, well, we've lost our way and that's how it is. It's some fundamental incompatibility. I think, you know, Gottman's work, you know, a lot of the other work that's been done out there, even some of the stuff Esther Perel's been talking about recently, all really just talks about this human need for connection and, and this human desire. I, I'm very much a romantic at the end of the day. I, despite facilitating the demise of thousands of marriages at this point, I, I really see how desperately people want to connect to each other and how important having love is to people. And, and I, I really, the, the, the whole intention of the book was just to try to share with people, this is so important you know, we could do better. We're capable of doing better. And if someone married you, at some point they wanted to do better. And, and there's, I really believe there are ways to stay out of my office. James, what would you say is the one thing, if there's one thing that we could all do today that would give us the biggest shot of saving the marriage that's struggling um, or, or making better decisions in who we marry, what, what, what is the one thing we could all walk away with today? I would say be, um, be fearless. I mean, I would say just be fearless in your candor towards your partner. I, I, people don't hear what you don't say. And I, I really feel like we, um, we need to share what's really going on in our heads and in our hearts. And, and sometimes those two things are connected and sometimes they're disconnected. But, but if we're not honest with ourselves and then honest with our partners about what's going on in our heads and in our hearts, look, I, I get it. It's hard to get through the day, you know. And, and when you're married, you know, maybe you've got kids, you've got a job, you have all the stresses that come with those things. And it's so easy to just go, you know what, this, this little disconnection I feel from my spouse, it's not worth it, or this little annoyance I feel because of that thing they said last night about my sister, I, I'm just going to put it down and leave it. That stuff festers. And I really believe that the best thing you can do is just some radical candor with yourself about what you're feeling and then with your partner, because that, that's how we're going to keep that connection, and that's how we're going to keep out of my office. Good stuff. James J. Sexton is, a, is an attorney, a trial lawyer, um, and is helping us understand this. The name of the book is If You're In My Office, It's Already Too Late. You can go find that at the bookstore. You can also go to his website, New York City or nycdivorces.com, nycdivorces.com. Um, great insight into uh, how, to, how to make it so you don't need to see a divorce attorney. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer and love stronger. Up next, do a little Coach's Corner, continue learning about how to uh, get the most out of your relationship by putting the most into it. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Label. Welcome back. You know, I um, as we talk about relationships, it's it's interesting because there's it seems like to me many ways to to skin the cat if one is skinning cats, which is such a bad statement. Um, but one of the things I, I find helps a lot is is try to identify how you approach. Uh, life, how you approach relationships on the show. We've had so many different guests with uh, various tools and ideas and information. And you might even notice with yourself, sometimes you're like, yeah, well, that, that would be great. They just don't know me. They're not like me. They, I mean, they don't know how hard my partner is. Um, and so one of the things you may feel like is sometimes the advice doesn't necessarily work for you. 
And it might actually be more about how you approach uh, life. It may be a little bit different. Some of us I, – I have a son that's a really talented musician, but he doesn't follow uh, any rules, um, at least consciously. He he didn't – he wasn't classically trained. He didn't sit down and learn to read the notes. He just plays by ear. And he can sit there and in one minute pretty much play any song and he can do it on two or three uh, instruments. Just hear it and plays it. But then if you sat him down and tried to teach him you know, with kind of a classical approach uh, and with lots of structure and with lots of theory and it would, it would probably ruin it for him. He's a guy that needs to just kind of wing it and improv it and doesn't want to be told how to do it. Um, but he, you know, it's it's just different how he approaches it. One is through feeling, and one is through kind of rules, um, and and you see it too. Just in the classical world, there's a right way to perform music, and a wrong way versus kind of the jazz world, where the whole idea is we're, we will feel our way through it. We are going to you know improv a bit, but even interestingly, in improv, there are rules. Um, a lot of those rules may not ever be stated. They just might be felt. But there's also timing at play. There's a little bit of chaos sometimes in it where in classical it might be a lot more controlled. Uh, in classical there might be a more con- preconceived process for how this needed to go. In improv there, there's there's an emergent reality that takes place, um, some based more on moods and feelings. So think about your relationship. How do you try to to get through it? Do you do it by feel? Do you do it by rules? And sometimes there might be a great way to, to mix both of them. But in the end, I believe there are some universal principles that apply to both that, that I think would help both. One rule would simply be if you want to have more harmony in your relationship, you've got to make a safe space, a safe space where you know mistakes can be made and we'll be fine, where a safe way that we can talk about the mistakes that were made um, – a safe space where we can try to kind of go off script a little bit. We might want to, you know, premeditate some of that and talk about, hey, can we take a little bit of time and create a safe enough space where we can do some improv in the relationship? And so you might be struggling in your marriage because you're approaching it almost like a classical, very rule-oriented person compared to a, a partner that's that's used to winging it and doesn't want to be oppressed by all the rules. But we can still make the safe space for both of us, right? Sometimes the safety means we need to know there are rules. And sometimes the safety comes by knowing that we also can safely improvise. So look at your relationship. Are you safe to improvise? Is it safe for both of you? Is it safe to fail? Is it safe to make a mistake? Or are we going to get a big lecture if something's gone wrong? Another thing we could be talking or doing is sharing and listening with some more courage. Sometimes it's scary to think that somebody's going to change the song. Um, and, you know, some people love to play in such a way that they change the song so much that it really doesn't work. And it might be better that you don't try to play with a group. Maybe you're just somebody that would rather just play solo. Um, but let's talk about it. When you keep changing and shifting and doing this and this and this in the relationship, it makes me think that you're not thinking about the relationship. It's more like you're just thinking about what you want to have happen. Um, so if you do want to play a really cool jazz song, you you do need to be thinking about the whole, right? Not just your individual rights and and, and realities. 
We want the whole sound to come out effective and good. We also need to know when it's time to just shut it down and let the other person go and let the other have their turn. Sometimes in our conversations, they're so one-sided that it really is just a solo. This isn't any kind of musical harmony or play that's going on. It's just solo and then the next solo and then the next solo and then the next solo when instead wouldn't it be more powerful to have someone playing a solo while we are behind them, supporting them, playing or playing other harmonies that, that help or other sounds that help create beautiful harmony. Also, we need to adjust, don't you? At some point in any relationship, you got to be good at adjusting the principle of take going from where you thought we were going and adapting to where we are. And then when it's your turn to lead, moving it to the next place. And when they move, we adjust. They might go louder. We might soften our tone. We soften our tone. They might go louder. But we stay in. We stay in the, in the music. We stay in the conversation. And by doing this, it really is this, this back and forth. And I think a lot of us just need to be confident enough to stay in instead of blowing it up and having somebody leave. Let's learn to sit in the chaos a little bit. Let's make it safe for each other. Let's adjust to each other. Let's offer our part, though, by the way. You have to offer your part of the song. It's not enough to just keep everything hidden. And know that tomorrow we do it again. (laughs) And tomorrow we do it again. Just like in music, um, I mean, it would be great if we could just hand out all the sheet music and everyone just followed the music, right? But the reality of life is it's much more dynamic than that. Many times it's more like jazz where it has to be made up as we go. But it doesn't mean there aren't real principles at play. So we ought to identify what worked. Take some time after we've had a discussion that we were able to effectively manage and and process through. And let's identify what specifically worked in that situation and see where that takes us. Wouldn't that be powerful? Anyway, it's never easy, but it's doable and it is learnable. You just have to want to do it and practice and practice and practice. And practice. An interesting thing. That's why they are teaching more and more improv in corporate America. They're teaching more, you know, flexibility and adaptability skills to people in the corporate world, which is very principle oriented. Um, lots of rules, lots of structure, lots of hierarchy, and yet we also want you to improvise. It might be a reason why so many people are disengaging from their workplace because it's just not flexible enough for them. It's too rigid. It, they feel trapped. And so uh, flexibility has got to become a part of all of our lives, all of our relationships. Anyway, just my idea. It's not, not perfect. It's just, it's just an opinion. We all can have one. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead as we do what we can to help you live longer and love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. Remember, according to uh, the um, 
According to some reports, Americans are taking fewer vacation days than at any point in the past four decades. And 61 percent of Americans who do plan on taking their paid vacation say they're still going to be working during their vacation. So it's like we're not vacationing at all. And uh, we we had an interview with Shimmy Kang, who wrote the book No Vacation Nation. It's time to take a vacation. And uh, she gave us some great insights back when we interviewed her. I started the interview by asking or saying if someone doesn't take their vacation days, it still costs the company monetarily, right? It does. Yeah. Economically, it costs us, uh, like you just pointed out. And um, even practically, I was um, when I was researching the article, I spoke with um, an HR um, manager for a very large ID company. And um, she was actually saying that for their company, they're really enforcing vacation because when people don't take it, it actually, on a very practical level, affects their accounting and affects mm. their um, uh, you know, their end of year kind of projections and budgets and such. So I think that uh, when companies are uh, factoring in vacation and it's not being taken, um, there's a whole ripple effect, uh, mind, body, um, business, society. Yeah. And, you know, we can also look at, um, you know, that overall productivity. It's interesting that one of the comments I got was, this isn't Europe, um, where people take all these paid vacation days. This is, this is a different um, country, of course. But when you look at the, um, the data, the top three nations that beat um, the United States in 2013 um, in their um, GDP per capita, um, all of them favored, had a uh, favored metric for uh, workplace productivity, and all of them um, had fairly strong vacation uh, policies, hmm. um, including um, anywhere from 28 to 38, 35 paid days off a year. So, so it certainly does have an economic impact um, on a nationwide scale. Wow! And and again, we don't we we even when we have it, even when it's at our disposal, we still don't go take it. Is some of this? It just seems like you have pressure, right? You have social pressure to to be delivering, you want to be on your game, you want to look good, you want to be there when the boss is there. Yes, yeah. And um, again, this is uh, nothing new. It's kind of been a, uh, you know, a, a trait of the workforce. Is, and a lot of the rhetoric, right, it's the, you know, um, the work harder, um, stay later mentality, which you know, has its purpose. So, sure. you know, I'm not advocating for let's all, you know, vacation. <laughs> vacation. And it's really about balance. It's really about balance. Now, if you travel to countries like Japan um, and you see there late at night, you literally see um, businessmen, um, you know, staggering home, um, you know, exhausted or having drank too much. The 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 commitment to the um, the workplace um, is really taking its toll, and um, countries that want to get ahead are looking at that and making um, pretty profound decisions that may culturally not be the norm for them, and saying that um, we actually want our employees to go home before the boss, um, yeah. uh, and uh, because we're we're advocating for we want that creative talent. I think Arianna Huffington is a great example of that. You know, in the Huffington Post, she speaks very strongly about. Um, even breaks during the day, things like, you know, uh, having a nap or having um, there's beds in the Huffington Post and um, taking meditation time because in the end of the day, she's paying people for their brain talent. Um, so it's not just about being kind and gentle. It's actually a, a smart business decision. And it seems like the better 
you are at delivering some of those other things that you were saying in this new age, this new era where our mind might be the real great commodity. If I if I'm a, if I'm more creative and collaborative, and I if I can communicate better, it seems like all of that gives me more freedom to feel confident taking a vacation. If I'm producing Absolutely. results, I should feel confident taking the break. Absolutely, and you know, really, what we're talking about is workplace stress um, and um, and personal stress and you know we use this term stress very loosely um you know i feel stressed today or my boss is stressing us out but um you know when we actually think about stress stress releases stress a stress response um which are hormones like adrenaline and cortisol which um, wreak havoc on our bodies Um, adrenaline puts us into what we call the freeze fight or flight mode and if we think of the workplace um, I really like to give this analogy. If you think of that term, freeze, fight, or flight, which comes from stress, and it can come from stress in the workplace or home, well, freeze is procrastination, it's anxiety, it's um, um, having difficulty doing your task. Fight is irritability, it's tension, it's arguments, uh, and flight is checking out. So if you're at work and you're surfing the net or um, kind of ending up on YouTube or daydreaming, all of these are part of our stress response. Yeah. And um, it's not how we want to be spending our productive work days. Um, so if we reduce the stress, we um, can get out of that mode that I call it, it's the lower part of our brain and move into um, a more conscious uh, way of interacting with our environment um, that is all about choices and um and in appropriate interaction, not automatically freeze, fight, or flighting. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's really key. Is we, we have about a minute left, and uh, I'd love to know what are some things we should be focusing on to make sure we are doing when we do take the vacation. I guess, A, let's go take it. Make sure you're getting your time. What should we do to make sure the vacation is actually something that truly is recreates us? Yes, yeah, so that term recreation comes from uh, recreate, and I think the biggest thing, um, Matt, is, is the intention to uh, unwind and unplug. Um, so some people can say, I'm absolutely going to take my vacation. That's the first step, but if you're on vacation and working, um, then that, that's not as great. So, um, And it, let's say you can't take a, a two-week vacation, but you decide you're going to take a three-day vacation, mm. but you commit to really unplugging and getting away. Um, The bottom line here is that commitment to get a break um, from the workplace, um, to really have our minds in a different place, um, whether it's our hobbies, whether it's gardening, spending time with our kids, working on our body or fitness or being in nature, but getting away from that workplace, that's what's rejuvenating. Um, So really planning and the intention and planning to do that um, is key. And then, of course, like anything, the more prepared you are, the more you kind of tie up loose ends. Um, if you're doing a longer vacation, talk to your colleagues, talk to your boss, um, and then have a plan for when you come back um, so that you're not overwhelmed. All of those things will certainly help. That, again, was Shimmy Kang, author of the book No Vacation Nation. Folks, we got to start taking vacations. You're going to – you're burning the candle at both ends. Can't do it. If you want to keep uh, keep the light on, you're going to have to keep putting oil in the lamp, aren't you? So let's all agree this year we're, we're taking some sort of vacation, and we've got to do it our way, right? We've got to do it based on what we can afford, what we need to do. But let's take some time off and uh, reinvest in ourselves. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. 
the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Monday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered, and uh, we're putting together a show for you. Hopefully, that'll uh, take you to the next level. Today, we'll be talking about how to get along with people who are different from you. Uh, You may run into some of those out there, unless all you do is just, you know, stay in your little uh, circle of influence. But odds are, there's still going to be people that don't think the way you do, that don't vote the way you do, and... We've all got to we've all got to lose some of the fear and start to open our hearts a bit if we want to influence the world. So we're not recommending avoidance. No, no, you can't avoid everything. You can it, try. Yeah, at some point you have to engage with people that are different. Do you? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, if you want to be healthy, okay. You could always just keep trying to avoid it, but then all of a sudden, what? It's going to happen. You might be in line at a Walmart. Hmm. All of a sudden, somebody's different from you and you don't know how to handle it and then next thing you know you're you're on the police no usually you just kind of bite your tongue because whatever experience is causing stress will be over soon yes that's what you do but others others actually just you know start throwing things wow ouch pull someone's weave (laughs) keep your hands off my weave well that's usually a florida story and we'll cover those at some point (laughs) We have a lot of those ahead, too. Uh, Plus, we'll be talking with our good friends from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up in their show. Mm. Uh, We'll do some empty news today, get the Florida news out. Uh, Storms taking over the Midwest, northern Midwest. And and we talked about this earlier, Becca, from Minnesota, Minneapolis, that region. Uh, St. Paul. They got 20-some-odd inches of snow over the weekend, and they're probably like, eh, all right, moving on. Just get the plows out. Whereas, you know, you you see the people in, say, Florida are like, wow, that's crazy. How do they live? That's white stuff coming from the sky. It's insane. I think the funniest part is that people there are more annoyed by their friends complaining than by the actual snow. I saw something today which said, I will unfriend you if I hear you complain about the snow. They're just just day-to-day life. Man up, toughen up. My only complaint right now is where we are at, it goes from 70 degrees to 40 degrees. Right. To seven, you know, what do you wear? How do you dress? That's all I care about. Let me know what I need to wear to walk out of my house to my car. We left Saturday for a trip, uh, a day trip, freezing in the morning, came home, and our son had the air conditioning on, and then at night it was freezing again. Yeah. So I almost did that over the weekend. I went to turn the air conditioning on. I'm like, nope. Not no, yet. not can't do it. Can't do it. So we'll get to all of that fun straight ahead. But first, let's get to the headlines. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? The United States work in Syria is not done. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley said on Fox News Sunday, we're not going to leave until we know we have accomplished U.S. goals, she continued. Be very clear. If we leave, when we leave, it will be because we know that everything is moving forward. Haley listed three goals to be achieved in Syria. So here we go. Here Take we go. note. Let me write these down. No use of chemical weapons in a manner that could harm U.S. interests. Yeah, yeah. Complete defeat of the Islamic State. Hold and, on. Yeah. Complete defeat. Complete defeat of ISIS. Okay. And limiting Iranian influence in Syria. Those wow. are our goals. Well, now hold it, because... Uh, those goals weren't being met, but a month ago, President Trump was saying, we're out of there. Right. 
Okay, so did that she send even, him this memo? That wasn't even a month ago. That was a week ago. A week ago. Yeah. And then, interestingly, a week ago, then there's a then there's this chemical attack, mm-hmm. and now we're back in it. So we're it's almost in. like if somebody wanted us to be in, we're in again. Yes, yes. Interesting. She argued that a chemical weapons attack could happen in the United States if uh, we're not smart. In an appearance yeah. on CBS, she announced new Russian sanctions will be coming down likely today. These new sanctions will go directly to any sort of companies that were dealing with equipment related to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and chemical weapons use, she said. Wow. I like the clarity. Yeah. I don't know if everyone is on the same page with those Yeah. I mean, she's, goals. she's just our representative to the United Nations. Right. But I, I just hope the administration's on board with it because yeah. she's in the administration. I wonder if she was like this when she was governor. I bet. She was go- was it South Carolina? Yeah, yeah South so, Carolina, yeah. and they had the. She was trying to get the uh, Confederate flag taken down. Yeah, hey, was, you got to be clear. I'm not sure how how she she functioned there because the news was kind of chaotic. But when she's on camera at the UN, she's very direct, looking at the Russian ambassador, going, "This is your fault." You. you. The Supreme Court set to hear arguments Tuesday on South Dakota versus Wayfair Inc an online sales tax case that may have major ramifications for sites like Etsy, eBay, and the individual seller portions of Amazon. Oh, boy. Or, in the defendant in this case, is Wayfair. They sell furniture and all kinds of stuff. I got my entertainment system from them. It's a great place. It's great. At uh, present, states may not compel retailers to collect taxes on sales made to a state resident unless the retailer also has a physical presence in that state. Huh. So if they have a warehouse, they ship out of the warehouse, they can charge sales tax within that state. But if you're, say, in a Nevada and you're shipping stuff to Georgia, don't you can't no sales tax. Yeah. South Dakota wants to change that. While major retailers like Amazon have the resources and infrastructure to collect and pay tax sales taxes in every state where a sale occur, and indeed Amazon already does this for its own sales, small vendors in these online marketplaces will not be able to keep up. Says if you run a company that makes just sixty thousand a year, paying an accountant fifty thousand a year to comply with three hundred different huh. tax jurisdictions, totally isn't going to work. Says the general counsel of eBay. Yeah, it won't happen. Someone let you get on Etsy with your little doodad that you make. Hold on, be it's nice. Doodad or you're widget cool, or who's cool a what's doodad, it? Yeah. Right. Um, you're not going to be able to pay taxes tax rates across three hundred different. I've done that as a speaker. When I would speak in thirty states, I would have to pay taxes in thirty states. Right. And it takes a lot of filings. Like, literally, I'd have to file in 30 states. So what they're saying is the uh, legal experts believe that uh, the court will rule in South Dakota's favor. Wow. So this will happen. What what companies want is a national sales tax. We pay one rate across the entire country for Internet sales to make it easy. Well, the companies would probably prefer to not have a sales tax. Well, that too. But, but if they have to have one, let's have one yeah. rate... That's what they want, but jurisdictions yeah. they have different rates. They want to, you know, different reasons they want to be able to raise that to sure. make revenue. So. Smart. The Food and Drug Administration is sounding the alarm over millions of eggs sold in at least nine U.S. states that may be contaminated with salmonella. Oh, Rose boy. Rose Acre Farms, an Indiana farm that supplies eggs to numerous retail chains, has voluntarily recalled nearly 207 million eggs as a result of the potential contamination. Consumers of these eggs shouldn't eat them, says the FDA. 
Uh, throw them away, return them to a place of purchase for credit or refund. The eggs were sold under the different brands. Let's see here. So far, they've been they've reached consumers in Colorado, Florida, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia. Wow. 22 illnesses have been reported. They're everywhere. Yeah. That's not good. You can't cook salmonella out of an egg? I don't know. I thought that's what you were doing. No. Apparently, it's still there. But you could just burn it out with with fire. Aren't you excited to see what the egg uh, the egg association is going to do with this? The egg board. The egg board. <laughs> In other news, a Louisiana roofer faces misdemeanor charges after repossessing a roof because he hadn't been paid full. He hadn't been paid in full, so he tried to repossess a roof. How does one do that? Authorities arrested 66-year-old Andrew Jackson Higdon III of West Monroe, Louisiana, Tuesday on charges of simple criminal damage to property and criminal trespass. The arrest warrant says deputies responded to a property damage complaint. This was back in December. The victim says Higdon verbally agreed to replace her roof in June and wait for payment until her insurance issued a check. That was the deal. When I get a check, then I'll pay you. Then I'll get it to you. Uh, the victim says Higdon started asking for payment around mid-December. She said she could partially pay, but he wanted the full amount. She says he told or he told her if she didn't pay, he would take the roof and her house would be damaged when it rained. He was going to take back the roof of wow. the house. And he did it. He tried. I, I guess he tried. Wouldn't that be crazy? You, you come home from like your work and your roof's gone. He's on a ladder with a hammer, just going away. Sorry, I'm taking your roof. I told you I'd take it back. Taking the roof back. I'm just that... trying to imagine the amount of labor of like removing a roof from yeah. a house. Unroofing. Not an not an easy no. thing. There's some things you just can't take back. You know, saying something rude to somebody, mm. it's already out there. Right. Can't take it back. And roofing their house <laughs> for free, <laughs> and then trying to take your roof back. So they uh, he tried to unroof, and they arrested him. So. I think at that point, maybe you think of a different approach. Well, that's where it seems like you just take them to court. Well, you had a deal. Uh, But that's why you just probably learn that you don't do anything for free anymore. I mean, without the money. Yeah. Get money up front and then do the job. There's a glass ceiling joke in this somewhere, but I I can't figure out what it is. There's always a glass ceiling problem, Becca. As you know, um, (laughs) it's, it's kind of... It, it, this is why we do these stories, so that we can all think through the healthy way to get your your roof back. Right. I'd put something on, um, I don't know, put something out in the news like, hey, has anybody seen my roof? Like on Craigslist? Yeah, get on Craigslist. Yeah, looking absolutely. Looking for a roof. Fits a house, a 2,400-square-foot house or whatever. Yeah, you got to put the dimensions on there. <laughs> yeah. Don't want to get the wrong ones. <laughs> Typical A-frame roof <laughs> with an Eve in it. I mean – yeah, nothing harder than finding a roof that just fits just right. That's right. Ugh, blasted. Okay, straight ahead, folks. We're going to be talking about how to get along with people who are different from you. Not an easy task. Nicole Cunningham will be joining us. She's one of our contributors. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you make it through this crazy thing we call life.
Welcome back, folks. You know, uh, we all deal with people that are different from us. They, they Maybe they don't have the same background, the same goals in life. We, we, they just bring a different perspective. So how do we get along with people who are different from us? Here to talk about it is Nicole Cunningham. She's a master executive coach with 15 plus years of coaching and consulting experience. She's dedicated her career to assisting companies and individuals and families uh, in Australia, Malaysia, the UK, Singapore, and in America. She is one of the partners at ClarityPointCoaching.com, and we love having her on the show. How are you, Nicole? Welcome to the show. I'm good. How are you, Matt? Doing excellent. Can't complain. That's good. Talk to me about this because, I mean, everybody is just a little different, right? And so how do we not be offended? How do I not immediately jump down someone's throat and get mad and frustrated the minute they start expressing their difference? Yeah, so this comes down to subconscious diversity, really, because we consciously think, oh, I'm an accepting person. I listen to lots of people's opinion. I'm not a racist person. I'm very liberal. You know, we all think that or we like to think that. But underneath, we actually have a lot, lot of subconscious bias that actually means that we feel more comfortable with what is known and familiar. And that makes sense because ultimately we're only the product of our experience. And, you know, if we're more familiar in particular circles, we're going to know how to behave and act accordingly. But this really comes down to live and let live and be being open and most importantly aware of what the subconscious uh, programming is actually doing and what bias do we have. That's so true. I mean, because so much of our lives is subconscious. We don't, we're not even, we're not even aware of how we're thinking or how someone's affecting us. But for some reason, we, we're not liking it. That's right. And this is really the reason why we published this article in KSL this week is we wanted to just stir the pot a little bit to say, you know what, we live in a little bit of a Utah bubble. We do, where there's a lot of expectations, a lot of predictable things that happen here. The diversity is very different from here to California and other parts of the country. So are we actually aware of the subconscious bias? And particularly as parents, how are we actually leading our children? Are we continuing those same cycles of subconscious bias? Or are we actually intentionally trying to push the envelope a little bit and open our kids' mind and give them a little bit of a broader experience. Yeah. What? What? Where does the subconscious bias come from? I mean, it's we're not just born with it. So it's somehow it's it seems like it's instilled in us. We we somehow have this uh, bias placed in us. Where does it come from? So it's all behavioural. Um, as you know, Kim and I are behavioural science experts, and what we've done through all our research over the last. You know, 15 years combined of working in this in this area, is we've understood that when you put two people in a room, they ultimately size each other up. And they, in that moment, say, should I be threatened by this person or should I feel easy with them because I'm better than them? So this comes down to the two core fears that actually drive all of our human experience, all of our behavior, which is a fear of failure or fear of loss. Now, this fear of failure is what happens when we're sizing someone up. Now, this is not two guys trying to go out and work out if they can have a fist fight. This is every person on the planet. So every time that you get into an elevator, every time that your waiter comes to the table and, and serves you in a restaurant, you're, every single exchange with another person, you're actually sizing them up, saying, where am I? Am I above or below? Now, as long as we participate in that, we also can lose our value. And this is really where our self-esteem links in with all of these subconscious bias. Because if we make a decision that, you know what, this person's better than me in some way, so maybe they have more money or maybe they live in a different suburb, maybe their appearance is better than what we perceive our own to be, that's when we get ourselves into trouble and we start to feel less than ourselves. 
Now, if we start feeling less and, and not as good about ourselves, what do we become? Defensive. And this is where really this diversity comes in. Because at any point in time, if we feel threatened, we're more likely to have aggressive behaviour. And we, this is what we see all the problems in our in our country at the moment. If you look at it, political, religious, cultural, race, sexual orientation, every single one of these uh, conflicts and, and burdens is coming because one group of people think they're better than everyone else. Mm, so true. And again, this is all going on underneath the uh, the sight line. So we can't necessarily we don't necessarily see it's happening. What what are some things we can do to to mitigate this and to minimize the impact of this kind of natural tendency? Well, it really means that you've got to have a little bit more courage, to be honest with you. So opportunities where you can go and place yourself in conscious levels of discomfort. So, you know, you're not going to go somewhere where you're ultimately you're you're feeling threatened and you know, you could be unsafe, but ultimately, next time that you are in a lift, smile at someone, say hello, or if you're at a conference, go and sit in a table you ordinarily wouldn't. Mix with people who you ordinarily wouldn't mix with, and that feels a little bit uncomfortable to you. This is healthy for us. Mm. It's healthy for us to push and to experience these different boundaries for ourselves, because most importantly, um, that we have to model them for our kids. So true, and and as we push and become more comfortable for it or with it, then our kids start to see, oh, oh, this is this is a normal, healthy thing. Does uh, then then will our kids actually end up picking up different biases? Then that's what we hope. We hope that they're going to have less as the generations go on. We hope that because of these biases that have been modelled in a healthy way by our parents and by other people in the community that we say, oh, diversity is a good thing. I don't need to be threatened by it. Because diversity teaches a few things. I mean, it teaches us this live and let live mentality, which is we all get to choose our opinions and we get to formulate them in our own ways. And, and there's no right and wrong. There's just different. It also stops us from comparing ourselves to other people, which is another really healthy thing about diversity that teaches us. But above all, we need to be raising kids that are open and allowing of every person to have their own unique experience, not to just have a black and white mentality, because that's limiting. It doesn't create and promote healthy relationships or connectivity. That's true. It's, um, it also seems like, as, as just as human beings, if I start to exercise more courage with others, I, I could also exercise courage to, to encourage others to do the same thing. That's right. And this is where the dialogue becomes so important. So if, if you were as a parent or as an adult to put yourself in a different uh, position that you ordinarily wouldn't and you have a different experience, you can come home and talk to your family about it. And, and over the dinner table say, you know what, I sat next to a woman who perhaps was trans- transgender today or I sat next to a woman that had different color skin or who had some kind of disability. And you know what, what I learned in that experience was these five things and it was positive and I felt safe and you know, I, I got to see and appreciate something different. It's only through that kind of healthy dialogue in the home that we're going to raise kids that are happy to do it on their own. Mm. And it's I, I could see a lot of people thinking, well, yeah, I mean, this is easier to do if, if it's just diversity. But what if what if what their values are, their beliefs are, are things that are what I would consider possibly damaging? Let's say they believe that it's it's fine to to smoke marijuana. Mm-hmm. Am I supposed mm-hmm. to how, how do I how do I be courageous to be open with them and not fall into their drug use. Okay, so this is a a really interesting one because you can make judgments for yourself 
without projecting judgment onto others. So yeah. using your example about marijuana use, for example, right. or alcohol, any of these things that are in our society, you can make a conscious decision around your own use and your own family without needing to make the other person wrong. And I think this really you know, comes down to that question you asked, but what if it's my core value and I feel like it's wrong? Well, you know what, that, you've got your own reasons for that, just like the other person on the other side has their reasons for it being right. And you're going to fight that black and blue. And this is what continues to create and perpetuate every conflict on the planet. You know, you're going to look at different parts of the world that's been in um, you know, historical warfare for most of a lifetime. And this is exactly the kind of arrogance and ignorance that happens. So instead, let's educate ourselves. Let's not be as ignorant and let's consciously be less arrogant and actually not step into judgment. Hold that judgment and that boundary for you. That's super healthy. But don't go as far as to say that is wrong blatantly. Mm, right. And and I guess, too, part of what we I mean, part of what this is about is my fear would be, I mean, it's it's a fear that's inherent in this, right? It's the fear mm-hmm. that if I even, I can hold my boundary, but if I hang out with them too long, I may not be strong enough to hold my boundary, so we will fall. So again, that's, that's more projected fear onto other people right, instead right. of actually being accountable for your own fears and taking personal responsibility for your own life. And that, we see that everywhere. We see it in every single middle school in the country and probably in more workplaces here in Utah than we'd care to admit that it's easier to play the blame and shame game and say, oh, well, they did that to me than actually be accountable and take personal responsibility. So this is the baseline of this whole article, this whole discussion today, um, Matt, is be accountable for every single one of your behaviors. And your behaviors come from your fears and your fears come from your bias. So really spend some time this week and ask yourself, you know what, do I have these subconscious biases? And and is it making me a mature and loving and wise adult? Or is it actually making me carry on and, and be quite juvenile in my relationships and creating separation? And, and what you end up finding out in the end is these people that you are so, so sure are so different from you really are most like you. That's right. There's a beautiful um, movement happening here in Utah at the moment of interfaith women are actually setting up these gatherings in in these wonderful LDS church buildings all around uh, the state. We had a a conference just this past weekend, which is a perfect example of integration of love. And whether it's love of one particular God interpretation or another, it's still integration of women coming together and saying, you know what? I'm going to drop my bias. I'm going to step outside of judgment. I'm actually going to see you for what it is that you really are, which is coming from God. Hmm. And and how powerful is that where we actually understand each other better? We're at least in the same room where we can influence and 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 build our, our commitment and our community together. It is because it's far easier to judge from a distance. Whereas when we place ourselves into this level of a little bit of vulnerability, a little bit of discomfort to actually take the time to drop those walls and biases and learn about other people, we always come out of that surprised and remembering that these people are just as loving as what I am. It just looks different. Yeah, no, absolutely. Give us uh, one more thing. If it, what's the one thing I could do today that would help me drop the judgment, drop the... Uh, the fear and, and actually be able to step into the lives of these other people that I feel are so different and scary to me. Okay. Above all, for everyone who's listening to this this morning, this segment on the radio, be teachable. Drop your biases and have a teachable attitude where you're actually willing to learn from others. Whenever you are setting your ways, you're unwilling to learn. 
So we're not saying completely, uh, you know, drop everything that you're attached to and your reasons why and all those values. But have those, but also at the same time have an attitude of being teachable and actually being open-minded to other things. That's really where this change starts. That's powerful stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Nicole. This is great insight. Nicole Cunningham, again, remember, uh, go to her website. One website is upskillrelationships.com, upskillrelationships.com, also claritypointcoaching.com, two um, great resources for you in your life and in your relationships. Oh, man, so much to learn about how to manage our differences and really how to lose the fear. So much of our inability to see or work with another is simply our fear gets in the way. And then most of our fear is underwater, right? We don't even notice it because it's it's just so not, you know, above the ground. But uh, the fear might be driving us to be less than we really want to be. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. Do a little empty news. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, nothing worse than buying that new phone, for mm. example. I've done this. And then you drop it yep. a couple hours later. 30 minutes. It, did you do that? I did. I'm sorry. It was sad. It was a sad day. No, that's a sad day. Even, did you not have the insurance on it? I was going to go home. You were about to go and home and purchase it. it online. And yeah. between the store and home, I dropped it. And yeah. No way. Yeah, it was No horrible. way. Luckily, you're independently wealthy, though. Right. And a forgiving wife who went, fine, get another fine, one. Let's focus this time, Terry. Well, uh, the only thing that could be worse maybe would be if you just had purchased a $461,000 Ferrari 488 GTB, hmm. and then it was delivered to your house, and then you crash it uh, while on a, a ride, just a nice little calm ride, hmm. after you lose control and you hit a tree. Yeah, you're... Oh, man. That, that actually happened. International soccer star Louis Graben uh, was being driven by his brother-in-law at the time of the crash. It's always the brother-in-law. It's oh, never trust your brother-in-law to drive your new Ferrari, which caused $171,000 worth of damage on the car. Oh, come on. That's horrible. As Graben was due to be uh, at home that day, he had arranged his brother's his wife's brother, Michael O'Donnell, to be there and to take receipt of the flashy car. O'Donnell and his friend then started the engine and posed for photos. They then decided to take it for a drive. Let's just take it for a quick r- yeah, drive around the, go around I the mean, block. What's it's the fine. worst thing that could happen? Sure. Well, it did happen. And uh, he put his foot down slightly, lost control, and as the back swerved, the Ferrari crashed into a tree. It's a lot of car. Yeah. You step on that gas, you're not expecting it to be that much power. Oof. You lose control. By the way, both pled guilty to aggravated vehicle taking. (laughs) (laughs) I love how they clarify these laws. It's a weird law right there, but I guess that's probably one way to make sure that insurance covers all of this is there was a crime taken. taking. Yeah. (laughs) Let's make sure we get that taken care of. So just know, be careful when you get your Ferrari. Mm. Make sure that maybe you have somebody that won't drive it, won't even think about driving it. Right. Yeah. It's great news. I think it can be universally applied. Yeah, I, I totally do. Especially, I mean, I think if it's like a hundred, two hundred thousand dollar car, that's fine. Mm. Let them take it. But your Ferrari, your four hundred and sixty one thousand dollar Ferrari, you probably ought to make sure maybe Grandma is the one that receives the car. 
Maybe grandma wouldn't take it out, would she? No. no. Uh, Carnival she Cruise wouldn't. Lines, they're, they're uh, boy, they're taking care of a teenager. Listen to this. Um, they rolled into a small Virginia town this week on the hunt for a local teen and his coveted Snapchat handle at Carnival Cruise. They want that handle. Some punk, some young 15-year-old, Darian Lipscum, by the way. This is called cyber squatting. Yeah. Where you go ahead and grab a website or an email or something that would possibly be of interest to someone. People do it with politicians. And it belongs to really important names and people that – and then you You wait for them to come buy it from you. Yeah. Well, uh, they showed up at his Prospect, Virginia home Tuesday night after peppering the town with signs asking, Hey, Prospect, does anyone know Darian? (laughs) Does anyone know this guy? The Richmond Times-Dispatch reports the company offered to trade Lipscomb a free trip for his family abroad on its newest ship, Carnival Horizon, Mm. in exchange for his Snapchat Snapchat handle. The net worth of the trip is about five grand. Yeah. Wow. So that's all he gets out of this, five five lousy thousand dollars. Now, on the trip, they're going to make it a Snapchat adventure for him. Oh, sure. So they'll document it, and you can follow along. If and you he'll want be a to. super fan, and it'll all be great. Yeah. And but again, he will lose. At, at the end of this, he loses his handle. Well, yeah, but at Carnival Cruise, he probably has multiple handles. Yeah, he does. I that, just find the sign thing really creepy. Were, were they really putting yeah, signs around trying they're, to find him? They're finding. They're, they're they were looking for Darian. That sounds like the kind of thing that happens. Like if you're not answering calls uh-huh. or emails, it's like something your mom would do. That scary at that point. I don't want to go on that Darian. cruise. Yeah. Now come out into the middle of the ocean with us, with your family. <laughs> come on, bring your family, Darian. We found you. <laughs> we'll have lots of signs on the ship. Wow. Um, now, here's another one that you, you need to know about because, again, we're just here to inform you. We can't, we can't do everything for you. But no, there are no secret emergency pizza codes for 911 calls. Oh, Okay. Now, I did not know this was a problem, but a post right. has been going around in social media telling people that there's a secret code way of telling a 911 operator that you need help. But police departments want people to know there is no secret pizza code. It's not real. So you, you, it's the post says that you're supposed to use a secret code and order a pepperoni pizza if someone is listening to your call and you're scared that you might be harmed. But I guess it's a code way of, I guess, getting the person behind you not to kill you yet. Right. They think you're ordering a pizza when, in fact, you're talking to You're talking to the police on 911. Then you can give your location. However, there are a lot of unsupported claims in the post. It's mixed messages to people, and that's part of – that's why it's a little scary. Idaho Sheriff Dispatcher Roxanne Wade said, because they're feeling if they call 911 and they're ordering a pizza, either somebody can do that as a joke or that they're really going to get – Maybe a pizza delivered. So dispatchers are not trained with the secret pizza information. There is no code, they said. So, I mean, I, I have a feeling they'd understand because hmm. they'd say, so are you th- being threatened? Is that why you're pretending like you're ordering a pizza? And you'd have to say yes hmm. with anchovies. Okay. Because nobody wants anchovies. That's an important it, point hmm. that you got to say it that way. But they're saying don't fall for it. There's not a secret code. Don't do it. 911 dispatchers so, do not have a secret menu. People not, not, not in menu. distress would call up and yeah. try to order a pizza. Yeah, some would think there is, yeah. So, some would do it that way. And then people that were in distress need to know you can't use a code and then the police show up not automatically either. Hmm. So it was messing up everybody. Interesting. Do you know what this probably stems from? What? Well, teenagers. Well, Pizza Hut came out with their tennis shoes where you could just touch the, uh, there's a button on the shoe yeah. where you could order pizza. 
it's that sort of mentality where they 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 think that society in general is trying to make it easier to order a pizza when it's not. No, it's not. They're just marketing gimmicks. They're all just tricks. And the nine one one thing seems to be just an outlier. Well, Why? and didn't like Little Caesars have like a onesie? What are they called? Possibly. A snuggie that you could wear that looked like a pizza. Yeah. And it's we're we're not making society more pizza friendly, but maybe people are under that assumption. Yeah. Interesting. You, you can't. By the way, if you want donuts, you can get donuts at a police station anytime you want. Twenty four. Just on the front desk, <laughs> but not pizza. And last uh, little uh, empty news for you: Honda Civic takes passengers for an afternoon swim in a flo- in Florida. Oops. Uh, yeah, much like all of us would like to do on a stressful day during our nine to five work grind, a Honda Civic rolled into a Florida pool Tuesday afternoon. Oh boy! Local police said the driver of the car didn't get into the park before uh, did didn't get the car into park before getting out, and it uh, rolled into a nearby pool with two passengers still inside. Left oh, it neutral. No. Terrifying. They both made it out safely, which is the most important thing, of course, right? But they did go for a swim. The Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office shared the story on Facebook Tuesday saying a family was in the car when the mother got out to grab money from the apartment. And the post said that she thought she had put it at the car in park, but she didn't quite get it into the P. Maybe into the N. And uh, the car rolled right into a nearby pool with her husband and daughter inside. Oh, man. I think we know what was going on there. They were. She was mad at her husband. Oh, fine. I'm. I'm out of here. And then she thought she'd put it in park. No, I'm going to leave it in and. Oh neutral. wow. So she got even with him. Got even with him. All right. Ruined his good suit. Uh, marriage down the drain. Almost. They haven't drained the pool yet. <laughs> but uh, they did ruin their car. Oh boy, can you imagine the talks for the rest of her life? Oh yeah. What oh, you think I'm bad? What about yeah, what the about time? the time you sent me into the pool? Yeah. Remember, you almost drowned both of us? I never did that to you. It's good times. That's a fight that'll last How forever. would you mediate that one, Matt? <laughs> I would just, I'd probably just say, hey, just admit there was a problem. Park's not easy. And then Have it be teachable. Buy, yourself, buy your spouse a new car. Oh, boy. Isn't love great, folks? And the neat thing is it's, it goes forever because your partner has a memory and they're never going to let you live it down. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. Our good friends from BYU Sports Nation will be visiting us. We're going to find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Yes, it's time now to head down to BYU Sports Nation, and we're going to find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Today, there, we're joined by Jeremy and Jason. Hello, gentlemen. What Hello. Uh, How good you Monday guys? to you, sir. Hey, good Monday to you both. Good Monday, but not the good Monday, right? No, it's, no. Yeah, it's the, no, it's, 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 it's just it's a, a good Monday. Day, though. Ah. In Boston. Really? Big deal. Boston Marathon. This is a big day. This is a big day. My uncle is running in the Boston Marathon as we speak. How many times have you guys run in the Boston Marathon? Boston? Mm-hmm. None. Have you run a marathon? No, no, but I wanted to make you think that by the way I said it. That was Boston? great. Boston? Yeah. Boston? Like, oh, no. Yeah, keep fishing for a compliment. <laughs> nope, never run one. I, I, how many marathons have you driven, though? Uh, zero. So many. I've, I've, I love driving a good marathon. Jason drove one this morning to get here. <laughs> Only a couple more days, and that's over. Are you moving? I am moving. Where are you moving to? Uh, down to this way. Down to this area. We're building don't, in don't Vineyard. Say the city. 
Really? And, uh, but we're moving we're, uh, while we wait for the home to be built. We're, we're building in the vineyard. Yes. My dad keeps asking yes. me, because my dad lives back in Missouri. Yeah. And, and honestly, he's asked me this at least four times. Is it, is it, is it vineyard or is it pronounced vineyard? I'm like, no, 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 Dad. How it's, much it's, crafting is going on there? It's, it's vineyard. But he's, he asks me almost every time we, we talk on the phone. Really? Yeah. That, so maybe. Like Dad, I already told you. Dad, maybe he's just. Stop asking. God. Maybe he's just playing with you. I hope so. I hope so. What a, what a kidder. But yeah, we're moving to a vineyard. Vineyard. Yes. That's a great yard, by the way. Yes. I love vineyard because that's where I go see. Nice, All the movies. Uh, we will be within. A la cinema. Like three minutes of said movie theaters. It's wow. Be awesome. You are living large. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the living Vine the Vita Loca, dude. Yeah. Hey, what do you guys think of these new NCAA changes um, with the kickoff <laughs> rules? Did you hear we're about that? Talk, yeah, we're going to talk about it. Um, I'm pretty indifferent. I, I think we're leaning towards more safety. Kickoffs have tended to be somewhat uh, dangerous, apparently. I, I, To fair catch the ball inside the 25 and then get it out to the 25 is an interesting thing. Hmm. You should just... I got an the idea. ball where you caught it. I got an idea. What about okay. this? Okay. What about the kickoff has to be the, – the kickoff has to touch the ground within five yards. So it's it can be an onside kick. It could be a squib kick. It could be a really hard kick off the turf. But it has to hit the turf within five yards, and then it's free ball. It's like a jump ball, and it's just game on. And it is currently a, a – free ball whether it's off the tee or not don't you think that's fun rugby kicks off uh with a a ball uh, a, a drop kick if you will yeah. as the the ball hits the ground and it goes up it's like a jump do, ball yeah they're trying to eliminate the collisions right um and the higher you go the less likely you are to have the collision yeah. the ball that is don't you think well, I'm not I'm not against that idea. I think I, that would be fun plus it's really nobody knows what's going to happen on any kickoff and no one's going to be able to get their speed up because the ball's going to be going everywhere. So you don't want <laughs> speed. You want agility. I think this is just an early step towards eliminating kickoffs altogether. Oh, it's, a, it's an anti-kicker thing. Which is problematic because what do you do? Like one of the most exciting plays in football is an onside kick. At the end yes. of the game, your team's down 10. You just scored a touchdown. There's 28 seconds left. You have no timeouts. But if you get the onside kick... And then you throw a Hail Mary or something, uh, you got a shot. That's if cool. You, so if you took away kickoffs entirely, that's problematic for teams down late. Right? Well, maybe maybe you maybe you I don't know, is there a way to not eliminate the onside kick but eliminate kickoffs? Maybe you do like something. The only kick you can make you, is an onside kick. So if you kick off, it, yeah, you, you have to you have to declare whether you're gonna kick it off. It has or to not. be an onside, do, kick. an onside kick. Yes. Or but then you just kick it way down the field. Yeah, then you just boot it. <laughs> Every time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is just step one. Like Jerem said, I mean, it's all about safety. That's that's what everybody's looking at. That's what all the leagues are looking at is to make things safer for the players. I, I think it's just an early step towards eventually eliminating kickoffs. Because honestly, from what we've heard from the uh, concussion expert doctors that have been on the show, it's not the one major concussion that's the problem. It's 50 little yep. ones. Yep. So, that's mm. the, that, so there go linebackers also and running backs. Interesting. I mean, you're talking about two sides, I mean, two teams on either side running full speed, full speed. Yeah. right into each other. <laughs> into each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, I think I think it's more fun to do the kickoff idea, like the, the or the kind of we need a little squibbage more. We don't ball know. Squibbage. We don't know where the ball is going to go. It's kind of a jump ball. Is every... that what Harry Potter played? Yeah. Squibbage. Squibbage. Catch the snitch. Catch the golden in the squibbage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, again, that's why that's why they hire us is to make up the great rules. That... Is it really uh-huh. that and Gator Ball? I mean, I am the founder of Gator Ball. Gator Ball. Gator Ball. Get her done. It's a great. It's a great dodgeball with alligators. Uh huh. It's out, yeah. I, it started with baseball. Just throw like seven alligators in the in you, the baseball diamond, okay. and then okay, chum hey. the chum the baseline. Hey, oh. J- J- Jason's here uh, through Wednesday. Okay. okay, yeah. Will you play Gator Ball tomorrow, tomorrow. or Wednesday yes. prior to we our will. hit? Tomorrow we will okay. play Gator Ball. Okay, it's, it'll change it's your one life of the, uh, forever. The fun fake ads. Oh, oh I oh, like oh. it. Don't say fake ad. Just fun. No, it's real ad. Sorry, you said it last. Yeah, it's it just it just feels fake. It feels really fake. What's on your show, gentlemen? We're going to talk about the kickoffs. We're going to talk about a uh, a BYU player that is coming back next year that we didn't necessarily uh, account for uh, a starter on Ooh. defense. Yes. We're also talking about scheduling and which is more difficult to do: schedule football or schedule basketball. We will discuss that. Blaine oh. Fowler on who he would have at starting quarterback for BYU should the Cougars play today. Uh, we play What's the Chance. little What's the Chance. Uh, and why BYU men's volleyball's NCAA championship hopes maybe took a turn for the better <gasps> based on a result over the weekend. Excellent. See? Let and me what? ask you this question. Yeah. Very quickly. Can you call it homemade bread if it doesn't come from your home? Okay, great question. I was given the loaf of homemade bread, but then Jerem said, so it's not really homemade because it came well, I, from somebody I else. I said, can you call other homemade? That no, way I know how about that it this? Your home? Was it made by one of your homies? No. Homemade bread? <laughs> it's a different kind of bread. Homie, don't play that, okay? <laughs> so, uh, great. I think it has to be made from a home. Yeah, I agree. It's, yeah. As long as it comes from a home, know, well, I think I it's homemade it bread. I your home, anyway. Yeah, it doesn't have to be your home. Okay, yeah. Agreed. I agree. Unless it says... Your homemade bread. What if what if the person doesn't have a home and their home is the bakery? So all that bread's homemade now. Like it can just get confusing. Yeah. You say they live in the bakery. Yeah. How awesome would that be? Oh, what a great life! That'd be the worst. You would be the best smelling person ever. Yeah, but then you'd you'd wake up. Your spouse so far. Your spouse would never be sitting, you know, sleeping next to you. They'd be cuddled up to some rising roll down in the (laughs) couple warm bakery. (laughs) Ratatouille mixing your little ratatouille, little rat in the hat. (laughs) Get out of here. All right, gentlemen, have a great show. Knock them dead. Ah, yes. See, they bring such great visuals to all of us. Hey, as you know, we like to wrap up the show with a little hero story. And uh, listen to this one right out of Rhode Island. Scott Albanese uh, works as a busboy at a diner in Rhode Island. On March 3rd was like any other busy Saturday at his restaurant until the 18-year-old heard screams of help as a customer was choking. He looked and saw her choking, and he went immediately, turned, stood her up, and did the Heimlich maneuver in the aisle, says diner manager Rose Burke. Albanese was in the right place at the right time, clearing tables next to the very booth where the woman and her husband were sitting. After about three times of doing the maneuver, the food unlodged, uh, which I was very thankful for, and I just was incredibly lucky to be able to help. I'm really happy, she says, um, or uh, she's she's okay, Albanisa said. 
Anyway, even more amazing, Albanisa had only just learned the technique a few days prior to the incident thanks to a high school elective course called Lifesaver. When I was learning the Heimlich, um, I asked my teacher, I was like, have you ever used this in the time frame you've been teaching? And uh, the teacher said that at 15 years, uh, the, the teacher had never used the maneuver. But Scott got to use it just a few days after he learned it. So, Scott Albanese, you're the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for being there at the right time in the right place and having the knowledge to do what you needed to do. That's all it takes to be a hero, my friends. That's it for the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas and more information to help you live longer and love stronger. BYU Sports Nation is up next.